Welcome to the Sorch Podcast, where we explore Sikh and wider South Asian history, art, and philosophy with historians, artists, and researchers. How's your daughter? You have a baby girl, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How old is she, if you don't mind me asking? She's two and a half. She was oh, born mad. in March 2018. That's yeah. mad. Uh, On Brexit. Bless. On Brexit, that's jokes. That's yeah, jokes. Yeah, and um, ironically, you know, that sent me here to Denmark from born and raised in Slough. So is, she, is your daughter then Danish by birth? Yeah, yeah, Danish by birth, yeah. Nice. And so have you changed your, like, are you like a citizen of Denmark or, or do you still own a British passport? Well, I'm a resident. Um, but I don't have a permanent residency in that respect. So I'm here because I have a full-time salary and that kind of affords me to be here in Denmark. In other European countries, you get like a, you get this leeway to be a job seeker, right? So for example, you could be in France and spend about maybe six months there. In, you know, European law, you can visit European countries in the EU for three months as a, as a visitor, as a tourist. But if you extend three months, then you've got to somehow justify you being there. And it normally comes down to three things. Uh, one, you could have sufficient income. So yeah. if you've got enough money in the bank, so like £20,000 normally, I think it is. Or, or I think it's 10 Or okay. if you have um, a job, a salary, or you have a family connection. And then I had a, I had a job. So that justified me being here um, and living here and paying taxes and all that. So if Brexit actually does happen, how will that affect you and your family? Legally standing, yeah, it would affect me quite a lot. But let's be honest, I don't think they're going to be deporting British British people out of Denmark or British people out of Spain. You know, you've got hundreds of thousands of British people in Spain and so on in Denmark and uh, not so much hundreds of thousands, but I think you've got 300,000 in Spain as like retired elders and so on. And I really don't think the government of Spain is going to start to forcefully deport these people. I mean, it's a privilege, right, to be British. In the diplomatic sense, I don't think there'll be like violent repercussions like that. But um, it does question a lot of stability, you know, in terms of my residency. It does question whether or not I'm legally here, what what does happen next. And, you know, so far, so good. Uh, it seems like the British and Danish relationship is quite good. Um, so I think they're on like amicable terms about what happens next to the Brits that are stranded here in Denmark. I don't think it's going to be something I have to immediately worry about. But I think it will be. Um, I think it'll be okay. I've never worried about it since 2016 at all. No, fair. I don't blame you. I just think that it will be more of an issue for EU citizens in the UK rather than UK citizens in the EU. The only reason I spoke about your daughter was because you mentioned you put it to bed earlier, and I was like, I swear he's about my age. And then I was like, Jesus, man, he has a child. I am the child. I can't have a child as well, right? Um, but equally, my older brother's got two little girls. Oh, I, it's indescribable. I'm sure you can appreciate it like that. That loves. I think. Uh, I think when you have kids, everything starts to fall. You know, makes sense. I, I don't think anyone's really, really ready. I think, even in that case. Let's say, for example, you know, uh, you've got a couple, they get married, they save enough money, they they get a mortgage on a house, they do all the necessary things that you think need to tick the boxes, you know, you do all the right things, and you get enough money, you put a down payment on the house, you are financially stable, you have everything all in place at the right time and everything, you know, all the things that you can imagine, but the moment the baby is born, 
that's when the real test starts. And I don't think anything can prepare you for that. Anything actually, you know, you could have all the, you can have all those things in place or just things that you need to handle at the time, at the moment that, you know, kind of do, separates what's a good parent, what's a bad parent. Yeah. I almost question myself, like, oh, who am I to be teaching a kid anything? But I guess that's also the blessing of having a child. Think what you say. If I'm honest with you, so like I've got a two and a half year old now. And she's at this age now where, you know, that was two and a half years. And consider the nine months that she's in, you know, her mother's stomach. Um, so you've got nine months there, two and a half years. So that's like what almost, let's say, let's say three and a half years. And see, I've had three and a half years of me knowing I'm going to be a dad. Now, in those three and a half years, you can learn how to cook. You can learn its life skill. You can learn something that you can traditionally pass on to your daughter. If you don't know Punjabi and you're not literate, you can do that in those three and a half years. By the time your daughter is three years old, you could be equipped with what it takes to, you know, pass on that knowledge to your daughter. You could lay the foundations, you know, lay that kind of infrastructure in that in her life to set the ball rolling. Like, for example, now I've got a five year plan. Yeah, yeah. What do I want to pass on to my daughter? I know Punjabi. I would say I'm mediocre at Punjabi, but I'm not an expert in Punjabi. They've, there are words now I've had to use every day in order to advance my Punjabi to learn for my daughter. So, for example, like she says in Danish, you know, uh, I have to say as a parent, something is dangerous. They're farly, they're farly, you know, which means it's dangerous. So don't go near them. But I'm like, how do I say that in Punjabi? like on the roads of the crossing but that doesn't really naturally flit it doesn't fit you it doesn't normally flow you would say something like satellite you know or something like that instead so i've had to really learn the words that i've never really had to know before everyday use for example uh kurgosh as a rabbit because that's a favorite animal yeah but kurgosh is a badass word though it is yeah but I guess this is the thing because we don't necessarily talk it day to day, and so I guess you're not like exposed to the to expanse of vocabulary that you would need. Yeah, but that leads me back to my point, right? Because my daughter's three and a half years now, so I've really got. I think I've got cooking down to a T. And my Punjabi's mediocre, like uh, in terms of like you know above average, and then something I feel confident to pass down. But something I'm going to be advancing in the next five years, so that when she's seven and when she's eight, I'm going to be sitting with her, reading and writing like things from this Pradesh and other Punjabi sources and stuff like that. To you know, I've got five years until that day happens, until when she's seven, that she can sit by me or on to the side and read something and and write something together and do homework on that even we even if we start at six that's four years away i've got four years to do that right and i think you know passing on knowledge or intergenerational knowledge like that especially when it's culture heritage and punjabi language or anything like that that you feel like has a significance or importance that you want to impart on your children it doesn't start from day one you know for the first nine months they do nothing right they lay on their back and they want milk and they sleep they sleep, they want milk and they lay on the back and maybe they'll start eating solids. But there's nothing substantial that you can really do after, until the first nine months or even the first year, right? And I think that's really important. And it also ties into sick archive. I mean, I mean, we'll talk about that later, but it, it is a lot of this significance. It's interesting that you start this conversation about having a child because that's when those identity crisis or that kind of like pivotal turning point and start to come to fruition 
about how what what is my identity and how do I pass on this legacy of who I am, my heritage, my culture, my my people, my ancestors and all that. You know, even through recipes, the only reason I'm learning so many Punjabi recipes is that my daughter can associate what her dad's food is and who her dad was. Just like a random fact on Punjabi food, yeah, did you know tomatoes are not native to India? Yeah, I know that, yeah. And it wasn't, they were introduced by the Portuguese in like the 1500s. Like, I know it sounds really stupid, but how shit must have Turka been before the Portuguese turned up? It's funny you say that because, you know, there are recipes without tomatoes. And even what is tomato in Punjabi is tomato, right? So it's like one of those things where you say to yourself, what is Punjabi? What is the construct of Punjabi? Where do these recipes come from? What am I technically, authentically teaching my daughter here, right? But there are some good Turkas you can do with Dane with uh, some marinated thing that you can do you can also do it with like i think coconuts and like uh, mangoes no you are right i appreciate you can make dotka with coconut or mangoes personally i absolutely detest coconut dotka it is grim to say the least however just bringing the conversation back to tomatoes and dotka and how that is almost synonymous with punjabi households and punjabi culture and actually, when we look at it, it's a hybrid or a result of a number of different cultures. I mean, that's what I mean. That's what all these things are, right? Culture and identity formations. A lot of these are amalgamations of everything else. There's nothing really exclusive about it. So, say for example, like even even Punjabi. I'll give you an interesting example, right? Personal anecdote. I've got a Punjab tattoo, the map of Punjab, as a tattoo on my chest, right? I got that when I was 17 and obviously I feel like I'm the coolest guy in the world right like obviously then I come to realize I've come to age of reading into these things I'm like hang on this Punjab border is today's Punjab border but but then what Punjab what tattoo should I get so I've been thinking for the last few years should I redesign this tattoo should I redraw it should I get the you know the full butterfly Punjab and then I had to design a map for Punjab for this uh, Sikh museum uh, in Denmark and and trying to explain this Punjab map and then I came to the realization then only then in 2019 I was like oh hang on this is the British construction of Punjab or you know those borders and and then I'm like well you know what should I where do where, where what should I do should I fade should I do like a faded part of Kashmir should I do a faded part of like Balochistan should I do a faded part of like you know, Rajasthan and these kind of faded things it's just to show that these lines are blurred, you know, and it's just interesting, you know, I mean, even Punjabi speakers, we have Afghani Punjabi speakers, we have Kenyan Punjabi speakers. Yeah, yeah. Now, what I'm going to take from that and say for later on when we talk is about how actually within that conversation, there's almost like a tug of war between like an exclusive, an exclusive Sikh identity and a Sikh identity that is like a hybrid of numerous other identities. And what I mean by that is, and I think a really easy way of explaining it is, is if you ever look at Javala's Twitter, you will notice how beautifully and how eloquently he often explains certain parts of Gurbani or Sikh history with reference to the wider cultural or historical or religious influences that help to create the particular text or part of history that he's examining. And quite often when he tweets these gems of information out, there's usually someone in the thread or in a reply below saying, 
you're making it up it's your own interpretation where are you getting this from an example being yesterday he had posted about how there were references to Heer Ranja in a particular text Guru Gobind Singh Ji had written and someone was essentially questioning how could you come to that conclusion however what's more important for the purposes of our conversation on this podcast is is that those tweets and those exchanges that often happen on those threads illustrates this tug of war between an isolated religious Sikh identity and then a Sikh identity that has been constructed and is informed by the wider cultural, historical or religious influences that have helped to construct it. I, I can see and I can understand why the kind of the former identity exists. Like, I get it. The latter identity, though, is more liberating because it actually goes to paint a bigger picture it gives you a like a bigger canvas that you can look at and go oh yeah that makes a whole lot more sense like for argument's sake why is like why is Guru Gobind Singh Ji writing in Persian why is Guru Gobind Singh Ji writing in Farsi like as in to a to a, a strictly Sikh identity that is non-Sikh in a modern sense but actually then when you look at it in the sense of well actually the the language of all the royal courts at the time was Persian and actually Persian had been ingrained in Indian society for hundreds of years, then you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, Guru Gobind Singh Ji is adopting and and evolving those royal institutions to, to being a distinctively, appropriating them and evolving them into a Sikh form. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Persian was the currency back then. I mean, both like literally and culturally and, and, and how to navigate that society. And I think... Completely. And there was nothing Islamic about it either. And, and what I mean by that is like, so a modern sense that we have, especially after the British uh, really forced upon this idea of one nation, one language and, and all the rest of it. Um, we always see languages. So like we see Hindi as belonging to Hindus and Punjabi belonging to Sikhs and Urdu belonging to Muslims. That just wasn't the case back then. Hindu Rajputs, kings were using Persian. Pretty much all of India was using Persian. If you read Eaton's book about India, it's some of it, obviously, that I think has pitfalls, but a lot of it is really good in terms of explaining that wider context and actually mapping out that Persian world that existed in India. Agreed, there is an Islamic context to it, but it's not Islamic in the sense that we may interpret in terms of, I don't know, like ISIS. I see what you're saying. And I think, um, you know, what we're really discussing here at the root of things is, you know, the the codification of Sikhi, the, you know, when do things become axiomatic, right? like such that you know this is the case and and it follows and and we started to draw these kind of uh, deductions or kind of definitional constructs of what it means to be a sick and of course i feel like uh, that has become the root of all conflicts in the last at least couple of hundred years would you like to please introduce yourself where you come from who you are and just a little bit about your upbringing. Usually it's really good to start with kind of where your parents come from, where your grandparents have come from, because most of us have quite extraordinary stories about how our parents ended up or grandparents ended up wherever they did. As far as much as I know that our family on my dad's side come from Lailpur, which uh, I also discovered is not the original name. I think uh, Lyle was... Lyle was a general in the British and so they had named Lylepur after that and now it's called Faisalabad after the creation of Pakistan. So my dad's side come from there but even then 
I believe they come from Amritsar before Lailpur, going way back. And the reason for that was there were some incentives. A lot of people from Amritsar or Gurdaspur had gone to West Punjab, or they didn't call it West Punjab, like, but had gone to the west side of Punjab around Lailpur for agricultural reasons. There was incentives. There was um, irrigation projects. There was kind of you know land. Um, land uh, giveaways uh, what would you call it yeah so a lot of people had uh, these schemes to kind of establish the agricultural the agriculture there under the british and so on so a lot of people that say they're from lailpur or pakistan have actually actually before that had come from around amritsar region and so on can i ask you how you found that out I, I found that out through, you know, reading books on this topic, uh, on, on the agriculture, agricultural landscape of Punjab and just reading about the internal migration of Punjabis in Punjab, you know, those that go from east to west, especially some books that re- reference uh, are, are based on partition that speak about how many Punjabis have to go from west to east. A lot of them pr- uh, reference this history prior to that about when some of the Punjabi Sikhs were going from east to west even prior to that, you know, there is like a, a book by Professor Karen Leonard called Making Ethnic Choices. In there, she kind of details the agricultural landscape of Punjab, its historical landscape, because she documents the lives of Punjabi Sikhs who went to California to establish the irrigation imperial valleys in California, you know, as farmers and as developers. And also similarly, there are similar Sikhs in Australia who are brought there to, you know, develop and establish the agricultural uh, landscapes. These are in colonial times. So we talk a lot about kind of Sikh migration and, well, you know, why are the Sikhs in England and Canada? Oh, because they were soldiers. Well, you know, they they had military uh, migration as well, but there was also agricultural migration. You know, Punjab is the agricultural hub of Asia, you know, especially because you've got um, PAU, Punjab Agricultural University disseminates so much knowledge and research on these things. Um, these are expert farmers that go to colonial white settler territories like Australia, like Kenya, um, and Canada, and the West uh, West Coast in the Imperial Valley, and develop the agriculture there as you know agricultural experts. Kind of similar to how maybe. In a hundred years' time, now we'll see. We'll say, why are so many South Indians in Europe? You know, because okay, they were pumping out these IT centers and IT servers and experts on programmers and coders, and you know that there was such a demand for to develop the kind of colonial states. And so, I, I have, I'm making a huge assumption here as to why my family were in Lailpur. So it's based on an assumption, but it's a strong assumption. Oh. Okay, no, that's fine. The only reason I asked is because you said it with so much confidence in relation to your family. I was like, I wonder how he found out because I partly restarted ramblings again because I was actually looking into my family history and it's proving quite difficult to get any further than my dad's grandfather's father. So great granddad. I, I haven't, I can't actually get that far back. I have information about my bind. But even the information that I do have about my bind, it's been difficult to verify. So I haven't managed to find my bind on maps from, say, the 19th or the 18th century. Again, I don't actually think, just like you were saying, that the bind that we know now is the original bind of my family, which again complicates things further. 
Well, yeah, I mean, these, I mean, even heritage itself, you know, the kind of heritage itself is in terms of family lineage is a bit of a construct as well. And it's got lots of dimensions of gender and caste. So, for example, this original family, original bin you're trying to track back to is always on your dad's side, right? Um, that's one thing. And the second thing is that... That's also because, though, my mother isn't Punjabi. So if my mother was Punjabi <laughs> and, and, and her parents came from Punjab, yeah. then Tikia, I would also follow her family back. Like, as in, I don't, I'm not saying that your point isn't correct in terms of most people will follow their father's lineage back, but because my mom isn't Punjabi... That's interesting, yeah. I've been able to trace her white mother's side of the family back to like 1500. Um, I've managed to go on my mom's father's side, who is Bengali Hindu, back, I don't know, about four or five generations. However, with just the Punjabi side of the family, it's really, really difficult. Yeah, I think there's a there's another couple of things there that kind of affect tracing back Punjabi lineage. One is that, you know, it's not written down. Um, and the second thing is that there's a lot of trauma, you know, inf inflicted on Punjab, not just partition, but, you know, these original people that would hold the accounts and things are literally, these accounts have been not just destroyed, but either missing or something like that. And, you know, bins and villages have been uprooted, you know, several times and Again, there's lots of traumatic history there with Punjab. Lots of things are flooded, you know, um, literally because of the rivers and so on. You know, the, the landscape, you know, uh, doesn't allow for such things and it encourages migration, internal migration. So there's a lots of complexity there in Punjab. And even, you know, like I was referring back before about a gender dimension to heritage, there's also this caste idea, you know, I mean, sorry, class uh, impact, because a lot of things, you know, you know to, to actually have a collection of heritage items or storytelling or anything like this you require storage um something or something that can preserve artifacts and so on and there's no room for that back home sometimes so especially for you know uh, lower class or uh, less privileged folk because it is a privilege to be able to track your heritage quite back you know some people have family heirlooms and then you think to yourself you know there was in a storage box where how it was in a secure facility it wasn't affected by war. It wasn't affected by colonialism or raids or poverty or or thievery. It, 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 it wasn't vulnerable. So, you know, to even have secure assets like that or secure storytelling to preserve that. I mean, if you look at Sikhi as an institution, if you look at Sikhi as like a, a documentation of history or of the time, we can go back to Guru Nanak and so on. But look how much like effort and jor, like serious amount. We had to have a whole army to preserve the storytelling and history of Sikhs that go back to 1600s. Whereas you could go to, you could find your mum's side of the family very quickly like that, you know. But do you ever, do you ever, do you ever not feel like so far removed? Like if you did find out who your great, great, great grandfather was or where he was at a certain point at a certain time, is there ever a part of you that thinks, Oh, all right. I'll, I will be completely honest. I actually don't care. Yeah, I'm I mean, really that's what I was not, getting at. I, yeah, yeah, I'm really not that concerned who my grand, my great, like, I'm, I'm actually not that concerned who X, Y, or Z is. But as a history student, I find it really interesting. So for argument's sake, on my mother's side of the family, on, on my nanny side of the family, I can trace some of her ancestry back to one of the biggest glass bottle factories in Liverpool. I know it's a really random fact, but it helps to understand the kind of where you've come from and what you've gone through. And also it makes it 
pretty extraordinary than the circumstances that had to combine in order for you or for me in that case to even be here so on paper could you imagine that the great great granddaughter or the great granddaughter of a of a glass bottle factory worker in liverpool was going to marry the son of a hindu brahman from calcutta in 1940 something no, I appreciate that. And that's one of the reasons why I know we wanted to discuss this later, but it actually draws me to the importance of, I learned a lot of these things and this kind of outlook on things when I was documenting the Sikhs of Denmark, you know, um, and it really became clear, you know, for example, which families could go really back a long time and, you know, military service as well allowed for people to have storage again or, and access to photos and letter writings and and that allows you to take you back and just bringing that background to yourself we kind of went off on a tangent and kind of got into the deeper juicier bits but just coming back to you in terms of like your family your upbringing and where and where you come from yeah i'll give you i'll give you a fun story actually just because you were talking about you know who's who and how did they get them interestingly so joe just before i do that i just wanted to say that that's one of the reasons why i think military history and record keeping is just so so great in its kind of you know how prolific it is because it's got that access to data it's got the record keeping it's got that kind of security it's got that protection it's got that legacy it's got that kind of political and national will to kind of and funding to keep those memories alive whereas not everyone wants to hear a story of a peasant farmer that kind of, I don't know, had got married to his uh, sister's best friend and then migrated for because his kid got flooded. And these stories are just kind of so, they're not kind of, they don't have that kind of social capital or historical record keeping capital as much as maybe historical, like record keeping on military migration does and so on and so forth in terms of the national projects of, I don't know, integration and things like that. So again, there's so many things there, these layers of dimensions of history, record keeping, that kind of historical return of in, return of value, I guess, you know. But sorry, back back to the um, about me and this and how I got here. Interestingly, my, my grandfather, my nonna, my mum's father was in Singapore and uh, uh, I think during the Japanese occupancy as well. And there was a curfew in what around that time and they couldn't send letters back to Punjab. So he had been, he had got married to this lady in Punjab and he's gone to Singapore and he's writing letters back to Punjab and they don't hear from him for many months and they just assume he's dead. So they married his then wife to his brother, but then he comes back to Punjab, my nonna, and says, oh, well, I'm alive. I don't mean to interrupt, but is this a genuine story? Because this actually sounds like Bollywood. Yeah, 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 yeah. Genuine. This is mad. Sorry. Yeah. So he comes he comes back and then he marries my nanny, my current nanny. And had that not been the case, had they not thought he's dead, had the Japanese occupancy not happened, he would not have met my baby, who would have obviously had five children, one being my mother. More interestingly, she would not have had uh, Ravi Singh Khalsa Aid. So that's my mama, and that would not have unfolded had it not been for the Japanese occupancy and so on. All these kind of random chain of events that have been so globally impacted in the genealogy of the family. Who knows, I could have had a different nanny. Who knows, I could have, you know, a different chain of events and how influential the military migration and all these things were at the time. I like that. I like how you took the 
macro history and, and brought it right back down to that micro history. What about you then? So obviously we, we know a little bit about the complexity of your parents' background. So what about yourself then? So I'm I'm born and raised in Slough, you know, Slough known in England to have the largest Sikh population in England. And I obviously don't realise that when I'm born and raised in Slough. I don't realise that significance when I'm there. I just think Slough's like every other place until you, you know, you cross the, the motorway and you go to Eton or Windsor and you're like, okay, Slough's not like every other place, you know. And then I'm growing up there, Punjabi, British kind of the identities that carry you and none of these things really played a part I guess until you go to university you know those things kind of these identities and so on really crystallize because then it becomes a stark contrast between you know who you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with around the country and which how diverse people come from different backgrounds and then you start to kind of have these introspection about who you are and whether or not the way you were raised or you're born and all these things are are the norms right and then you start to like kind of again introspect yourself quite a lot you then say that secondary school primary school was easy runnings as in you didn't actually question any of this until you got to university no no nothing okay and even in university i was just uh, being myself and i carried myself through that pretty well and just uh did okay it started to kind of come to fruition a lot of these kind of further readings and critical thinking about identity formations and all these things a little bit afterwards because um and then I, 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 I've got a maths degree as an undergraduate. And so I only did maths because I was good at maths. Um, you know, when you, you know, and here's another thing I realized when, when I moved to Denmark. In England, compared to the rest of the world, we get really rushed to go to university. Like we get really rushed. You know, you've got people who are like 28, 29 that say to themselves, all right, cool. I'm going to go do an undergrad like in Denmark and other places in Sweden and so on. And even in America, I think they start their undergrad around like 21, right? Uh, we start our undergrads, 17 year olds can start their undergrads, you know, technically. That's probably the youngest you can be an undergrad. And you, you know, you're expected to get your master's and PhD by around like 23, 24. Like we get really rushed. And I think um, obviously when you leave and you start to realize that another world is possible and, you know, it doesn't really have to be that way, but then it's too late by then. So I only did maths at university because I was good at maths and I was really pushed to go to university. Like, you know, when you're young and 17 and 18, you're doing your UCAS applications and you're like, okay, look, I can't get what the only A level. I've got like an A star in or A is like maths. So like, oh, I better just go do maths at university. It's not that I didn't enjoy it, but it's what I did for three years. And then straight after that, I, um, I knew in the third year that I wanted to apply for law. I realized there was a course called the GDL uh, graduate diploma in law, which gives you a law degree in the space of one year so it's a fast track and it's incredibly intense um and i did that and i and i did i did pretty well in that but it was a really intense but it really injected this kind of um consciousness about how like society functions the politics of society the legal mechanisms uh, the legal constructs of our society how we are governed and all these other things and and all these disparities in societies and i became really you know aware you could say and um and then yeah and then i started to do a lot of further reading on that and committed a lot of reading into things like wealth inequality uh you know critical race theory legal history 
Um, and obviously that leads to colonial, you know, the, our whole legal system is a colonial remnant, right? It's a whole, it, our, our whole entire legal system is a colonial, it's a remnant of colonialism. Would you then argue that, for argument's sake, a Greek or a Roman sense of legality is distinctively different to a colonial sense of legality? And if so, how? I, I, I mean, when I'm referring to like, colonial legislation i'm talking to things like with reference to what affected india and africa and so on and asian africa um so for example maybe colonial legislation on homosexuality uh legislation on census building or you know identity religious formations and 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 even the most important one is the land alienation act you know of punjab and the privatization of kirt and this this debt farming that has been uh, affecting Punjab, what we're hearing in the news lately, is a, a, a legacy of colonial legislation that inflicted Punjab. So it's all pretty much interconnected, and it's some of the realizations I'm coming to with this further reading when I was doing my uh, law degree. Ah, okay. So what you're actually saying is is that it's the colonial constructs of legality. And the remnants that are left over, which have been inherited in the various colonies, rather than the entire system itself. It's always good to clarify what we're talking about when we're having these discussions, and especially for everyone listening. Just to move on then, when I had announced that we were having Sikh Archive on the next podcast, I was sent a number of questions, mainly asking, why are you particularly left-leaning? Well, yeah, yeah, and also this, but also like the judiciary, the police force. Um, I mean, even, you know, there was no Punjab police before, you know, back then. When did the Punjab police become established as an institution? You know, who were the people, even if you think about policing um, and its origins and so on, when did it come to Punjab? You know, people think it's normal and it's always been there, but there wasn't, you know, what is Punjab policing? Policing is obviously the 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 implementation of the law and this judiciary and the courts and kacheria and all these things that you know that lots of these things are also legacies of colonial uh, systems of governance and 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 what I mean by colonial maybe I should use the word foreign you know in in with reference to Asia and Africa and so on there's a really good book um, a nice fiction with Chinua Achebe called Things Fall Apart which kind of really explains how you know. You know, they start off with the churches, they start off, then they begin, then they start these courts, these artificial constructs of uh, legislation, of power and governance. These things are really foreign to us, you know. We see these kind of discourses take place today in, in six Sangats that say, you know what, why do we have to resort to going to the police? Why can't we have a Panjabiari system? All these things like that. And there are other things out there that are alternatives um, that can, you know, offer like, alternative tools of justice of uh, retribution and all these things like that you know no fair enough the only reason i mentioned the the comment in regards to you being left-leaning was because a lot of people would argue that your political views perhaps may influence your interpretation of history what would your response to be that if if anything yeah there was a famous quote by um Norman uh, Finkelstein, you know, the the, the, the Jewish uh, scholar and on Israel and Palestine and so on. And he gets, you know, he's a he's a Jewish scholar himself and his family was, uh, you know, killed and, and tortured and during the Nazi regime. And 
that, you know, he's very, I wouldn't say pro-Palestine, but he's really critical of Israel as a Jewish. And he has a really strong voice uh, for those things like that. And he's written some really good books um, on that. And I highly recommend his work. And he, he, you know, he gets cast. He said, how, as a Jewish person, you know, like, how can you not be pro-Israel? Like, why do you, you know, stand for so much things on Palestine and so on? And he says, you know, I'm not pro-Israel. I'm not even pro-Palestine. I'm just pro-justice, you know? And that that quote, uh, which I think he said in an interview with Mehdi Hassan, really struck a chord because it's like, you know, left and right and all these things, whatever you want to describe it. What, what are you really, you know, criticizing here? And so if people are saying I'm leftist and all these things, I'm making those criticisms. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I'm, I welcome criticism. It's, not, it's nothing like that. But it's like, I wouldn't say I'm left or right. I just say I'm pro-justice. And, and you've got to think to yourself, well, what does that look like, right? What does that world look like where you want to be pro-justice? Whether it's economic justice, whether it's social justice, whether it's political justice, whether it's kind of racial justice, uh, whether it's wealth justice, what do these kind of things look like, you know? Even if you, you know, take the context of Sikhi and uh, say, for example, the Anandpur Sahib Resolution, a lot of people don't know that it's, a, you know, it's a proclamation and um, it's got resolutions that include things like uh, reparations. So let's say, for example, now, uh, if I make the argument for reparations and someone says, oh, you know, look at this lefty talking about reparations. Reparations is a form of financial justice, right? It's it's what you've been owed or... and they, And what... In the context of Nandpur's high resolution, they were talking about reparations for people that are refugees that have suffered partition, right? As a st- as a result of like the elite politics of India, and that's a form of economic justice. And this is what economic justice looks like. That's that's how it's manifested through the form of ref- reparations. But if I talk about reparations and someone's saying, "Oh, look at this leftist," or say, for example, um, even things like healthcare or other left-leaning policies, or or what you would describe as left today, what they're really just actually are is just pro-justice policies even labor rights you know uh labor rights in terms of people's uh labor justice in terms of being fairly paid and and not exploited which we know is you know a lot of the bedrock principles of sikhi and there's so many sakis of good nanak that you know that kind of uh illustrate that if good nanak squeezed two roti or if someone you know did a protest today at Downing Street and squeezed two rotina, you know, and it was staged and there was blood coming out of another one and milk coming out of another one. And we were talking about exploitation of labor and child labor and all these things. Those same people would still have the criticism and say, oh, look at this lefty, right? And it's like, that's what labor justice looks like. So what do you think economic justice looks like? What do you think social justice looks like? What do you think religious justice looks like? And I think if you, if you go, if you'd use that kind of just a quick one on, on your point, because I, th- I think it's a brilliant example that you've used. Would you say that the fundamental difference between the framework of Guru Nanak Dev Ji and this left-right framework is, is that actually Guru Nanak Dev Ji's framework is completely self-sovereign in that it's perpetuated by the community. There is no state involvement, quote-unquote. However, the left and right system is actually a political system that always is going to involve some form of nation state. It's also quite new as well. I mean, I mean, the right is defined as this, you know, neoliberal free marketplace uh, um, agent. Again, tying into Christianity, colonialism, yeah, and so on, and these things. And one interest, and 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 the left is obviously is again 
I would just say what we what people would like to call the left, no matter what it is. I just think it looks like pro-justice. So if you have an issue with maybe things that are pro-justice, maybe you have an issue with the methodology of things. Maybe you don't agree with the forms of justice it takes or the strategies and so on. But if you generally take a pro-justice view, um, and then we would kind of conform to what pro-justice looks like. I think a lot of people that maybe criticize me for being maybe too left, either, and I don't mean this insultingly, either have a limited understanding on some things about how it, or, or, or are not actually don't have skin in the game of how it affects them. You know, like for example, I live on rent um, and I, 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 I stay heavily, I stay, I, I look closely and stay focused on issues concerning rent and renters' rights and landlords and things like that. Whereas a lot of people don't, uh, who can criticize me for taking up issues about landlords and how, you know, the, the, the accumulation of private property and houses is causing this huge housing crisis. You know, what are my views on social housing? You know, that used to be the pride of Britain um, until the 70s that had been completely liquidated by Margaret Thatcher and this new neoliberal era. But that's a different discussion. But what I'm trying to say is that there are things that certain policies um, inflict injustice, right? And I think as a Sikh, or at least my opinion, or what it means to be a Sikh is to just see where there is injustice, because that's always going to be either a consequence or an unintended consequence of something. Anyone makes any decision on any grounds on anything, someone's going to lose out. And it's about kind of minimizing that or mitigating that is kind of redressing that and saying, look, there was an injustice. India, Pakistan was created and there was a huge injustice. You know, we don't want to go back to a Bharat state, but give reparations to the refugees, give them adequate housing, give them adequate access to, you know, clean water. Give the, Don't make them live in kind of these camps or refugee camps or uh, kind of limit or reduce the military controls on their confinements and all these things like that. Give them education, give them kind of, you know, reservations to kind of uh, uh, give them access to social mobility, all these kind of things like that. I think they all look like pro-justice positions to me. And maybe we would be called leftists or maybe we would be criticized for that. But I think, again, I'm getting inspiration from Norman Finkenstein. I'll just say I'm pro-justice. And if you have a criticism about what that looks like, then it's probably most likely due down uh, comes down to maybe the strategy or they don't or they or they or they have a limited understanding and, I, and i'm sorry to say that i don't mean that in an insulting way or they don't have skin in the game in terms of if they've ever experienced poverty or homelessness or what it means like to be hungry you know um take for example the policy that was disputed today uh, recently more recently with marcus rashford right about feeding school children during the break because of the coronavirus and you know i'm having full-blown conversations with six and other people that you know criticizing me saying look you know what don't just give them handouts it's not fair like that well i was just gonna actually say before you brought the marcus rashford thing which actually ties in nicely wouldn't you argue that lungard is a leftist idea it's universal right of food i think in a, in a grand sense in a, in a very grand sense, you could say yes, but I think we have to remember that Sikhi became... Here's another thing as well, it's a really important talking point, I think that I would like to your listeners to know or hear, is that Sikhi came before the Industrial Revolution, and the Industrial Revolution was like probably the most pivotal and momentous like moments in history that radically transformed our society. 
So a lot of these things that we currently associate or consider to be left or right is, you know, post-industrial revolution in that sense. Well, just to add a little bit of historical context, left and right comes from the French Revolution, where they sat on either the left bench or the, or the right-hand side and, and everything actually derives from that. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that. And, and I think, again, going back to like the 1970s of the neoliberal era with, you know, Thatcher and Reagan and the liquidization of social housing and, and, you know, the decimation of trade unionism and all these things. So trade unions, again, what is, what is, if we've got pro-industrial revolution and we've got lots of labor and we've got this mass industries that require, you know, coal mining and all these things. What does justice for them look like in terms of their labor, in terms of their income, in terms of their men and all the kind of efforts that they put in to feed their family? What does justice for them look like? Of course, it's going to be trade unionism, right? You've got to organize, you've got to fight for your rights, you've got to get numbers, you've got to get support, you've got to get leaders, which is basically everything that Sikhs do anyway in the in the search for justice, right? That's exactly what we do. We gather, we we become, we form large groups, we take on the powerful um, we do that in some form of unionism, right? So if you talk about trade unionism in terms of what it means to have labor justice, again, lots of people will criticize me being too lefty, but they don't maybe are not understanding or criticizing or looking on a world scale of what that means and what it looks like to have labor justice. So again, Sikhi came way before the Industrial Revolution. And I think, again, about Langar. Langar came before the uh, Industrial Revolution. So now we've got poverty on a huge scale, um, on a mass scale. Well, of course it was back then as well, but now it's more, you know, uh, globalized. And, you know, I think Langar as an institution has a philosophy of, yeah, everyone has the right to eat. Paid in full, you know, everybody eats. And I think, like, that's the core of what food justice looks like. I think, you know, if, you know, I'll give you an example of this. Let me, um, maybe I'm going too far on this but if someone gives a bottle of coke or cadbury's or things like that you know these corporate products for langar a part of me feels not disgusted but i'm like don't give coke or pepsi as langar like please don't do that don't 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 donate that those things are maybe poison to your children you know langar is the right to eat and it's about food justice so everybody eats, you get food justice, but there's also this idea that what we, you know, we're, we're, we're missing out is that Langer offers a lot more, you know, Langer offers, uh, it's an institution that offers a lot more in terms of, it offers community. There's Langer and there's Sangat and Bangat, you know, the idea of cooking your own food, uh, eating together, washing the dishes together. You know, there are, Langer is a place where debates can happen, discourses happen. We can have radical conversations while eating Langer. There's a whole communal impact of that. There's a whole uh, communal uh, recognition of Langer, a huge kind of mobilizing of Langer that people don't seem to recognize. Um, Yeah, in terms of what your original question was about whether it's like left or right, I think it's just, I think it's food justice. And what does that look like? Of course, in this current model of economic liberalism and all these things like that and, 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 and neoliberal markets, Langer is a counter strategy to that. You know, it's it's not how it should be. There's no privatized mechanism there or what's happening. So it goes against that. So again, to someone, you know, giving free food is not a capitalist model, right? 
So what is going on? And not to say that langar is free food, but no one's there's no purchase behind there's no purchase power behind the the the, the beneficiaries there. So it's like what I'm trying to say is that yeah, in that in that respect, it would be left. You know, there are many things you could uh, left and right spectrums you can make, but in in the economical sense, it's it's not it's more left than it is right. Let me, let, me, let me put it like this, just to um, wrap this wrap this topic up, like on this on this point. If we never had langar today, and six today proposed langar, we would get we would be called left. We would be called left or sims or whatever. We would say, you know what, you're a lefty. Think we can't do that. We can't afford to do that. It would be beyond our imag- imagination to propose langar. That goes for a lot of things actually in Sikhi. If you were to say, you know what our godwaras they should have an open door policy everyone will go nuts and say you know what no 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 you can't have that you can't have that we can't have that or you know what if let's go back even more pre industrial revolution hey guys we're going to start a godwara and you're going to be allowed to sleep there and like just just imagine imagine what those conversations so your housing what gives how why would they have housing rights there are so much there's so much kind of social utility I mean, even when the last time I went to Darbar uh, Sahib, I was, you know, I went to the top, I went to the roof and uh, I could see bullet holes and, and things like that, that are bullet markings and all these things. And you could go in the Atkal Tak, maybe, maybe in a few decades, that would just be inaccessible, you know, completely inaccessible. Um, and then, you know, again, we could look back and someone can say, oh, you know, maybe we should let people in there. And that that thought or that idea will be completely far removed from one's memory and say that's just not possible right and i think there are two things happening here when people maybe criticize me for being called left and uh, things like that one is because if we deconstruct the social utility of a godwara we see that it's very much you know it, ha- it serves a social purpose in terms of housing in terms of being fed in terms of that social utility of you know where and what this means for people i tell you something else a little bit interesting about godwaras um, especially in England and in the diaspora, a lot of the first ones were bought in the roughest areas because the land was the cheapest. I mean, if you look at Coventry, I think it's uh, quite close to... Um, Hillfields. Hillfields, yeah. Uh, listen, uh, that Gordwara there, Hillfields, right? It's huge. It's a huge industry, you know, but it's in it's in Hillfields. I mean, if you know if you know Coventry or even, you know, you know Hillfields, right? And let's... Let, Okay, let me let me just sum it up for the people that don't. Prostitution, drugs, crimes, you name it, everything, right? Everything under the sun. So, I mean, you know, and GMP is located at the heart of Hillfields. The point I was trying to make is that that Kodora can be so big and it can be so astounding is because um, land is cheap in, in those places. So that's where there's, and that's the trend in most of, I mean, the Kodora and Slough is in Wexham. Is, Wexham is a pretty similar rough area. Um, and... You know that Godwara could establish itself there. Land is cheap, and you got you look at the rest of Godwaras in the UK. It's pretty much the same story, you know. And the point I'm trying to make is that these Godwaras are at the heart of destitution, right? Lots of poverty and everything like that. But there's this there's this gap, you know. Like we have we have open door policies. We do have a lot of kind of leftist, you could say, like universalism. But we can see how, in some respects, the doors can be quite closed, you know. And the, the 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 reason that I say that is, and that this leads to my second point, is because we have a lot of communalism, you know, uh, in our philosophies. So 
I am criticized to be leftist quite a lot because I speak on things that are maybe affecting, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters or or maybe con issues concerning police brutality, maybe issues concerning Palestinians in, in the West Bank and on the Gaza Strip, or maybe Kashmiris, maybe Somalis, maybe Punjabis, you know, or I'm talking about wider conflicts and wider injustices. Again, what, going back to my original point, I'm I'm trying to look at what pro-justice means and what does that look like. We've got Kashmir and we've got Chhattisgarh, we've got Mizorams, we've got so many parallel histories that run like to the injustice of Sikhs and and what do they all have in common? If you draw the commonalities, you really start to see the uh, structures and the oppressive apparatus of of yeah and systems that you know inflict torture inflict genocide and so on and i think part of the criticisms that gets directed my way is because maybe i'm not talking on Sikh matters enough maybe i'm not you know i'm i'm diverging into other realms or other conversations so quickly again and i and I, don't, I only want to interrupt you just before we move the conversation on further is because an interesting point you made there and again it ties into what we were talking earlier about the example that we we're talking about on Twitter about kind of this reactionary Sikh identity that wishes to remain completely exclusive and isolated from anything else. And I, and I think you've kind of touched upon it when you're saying that a lot of the criticism in relation to you being left or whatever is actually in relation to you not necessarily focusing as much on Sikh matters, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, take, for example, Kamala Harris, right? Kamala Harris, who just became vice president of uh, the United States of America. She's got a huge criminal record. Like, uh, she was a prosecutor for in California. And there are countless cases where she's either withheld evidence or detained people unfairly or innocent people, innocent people detained and like ruined their lives, hundreds and maybe thousands and of young black men and so on that doesn't really reach the radar of sick twitter or sick instagram so when i raise that kind of point i get accused of being a leftist but the thing that does explode on sick twitter and sick instagram is that kamala harris denied a sick uh, prison officer or something or uh, to, to wear up to keep his diary and that just exploded and you think on the on the on the levels of injustice yeah of course everyone has the right to kiss and all these things like that and but there is a there is a grand project here of an injustice, you know, and, and this is really interesting because the Carl security. I was, I did a lot of research on this uh, in terms of, you know, where their money was going, who they were connected to, which. It was set up by Yogi Budgen originally. I didn't actually know that until researching for the podcast last week when I spoke to Shabud. Yeah, Shabud's a good guy. Um, I. He, in going back to that point about girl security and Sikh identity, a lot of people parade that, you know, they parade the Sikh identity. They parade the fact that we've got six in the military, we've got six in the U.S. Army, we've got six in girl security. And then I, I, I didn't break the story. I, I kind of just researched quite a lot into it and did some freedom of information requests and all those things like that and learned a lot. Uh, and was in touch with many librarians and uh, when I say librarians I mean researchers who have access to lots of databases and records and so on and dug a lot in terms of their connections and how entrenched they were in the Trump regime and 
and and their association and and um, contribution to ICE, which was the immigration service that is like controlling the um, you know children in cages on the borders and so on. And what I I was I'm doing all this research and I'm sharing this and everyone's saying you know what they're sick so I, and I kid you not I kid you not they're sick don't say yeah. anything bad how dare you kid, no no it gets worse than that I got a worse example someone said no but it's a good thing because if they have six they would be then the security staff will get Jatka from Hazur Sahib to feed them someone said that <laughs> someone said that <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I just need to, I need to gather myself before before I ask you to repeat what you just said. Sorry. Someone said that you know, don't you think it's a good thing that we have Sikhs as security guards because these firstly these Sikhs are everyday arm bandi American people who have who are, who are around, who are the guards. It's, they have no association. So, but a lot of the Sikh Twitter and Instagram was saying no, it's ethically correct that we have a Sikh. you know company in controlling the borders again borders really modern yeah controlling the borders of american and on the whole like you know you can't really win the sick voice on that people are going to accuse you to be a lefty and you say look the reality here is that we've got it we've got a yeah we've got a sick company that is and no matter how much you want to say they're not sick that, that's that's irrespective of the point we have a sick company that is administering administering violence horrific 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 violence rape torture child separation deportations incredibly violent things you know um and it's paraded um as sick and i th- and i think that is enough to kind of warrant its existence um which is kind of terrifying of what this means for the future in terms of sick identity this is identity politics everything is identity politics if you say you're british and that's identity politics that has a huge undercurrent of violence that administers that identity you know i think you know um people associate identity politics with the left and say that you know identity politics is this is that it's so left you're such a kind of leftist and i get accused of these things the people the same people that maybe accuse me of being too leftist right there have been conversations that are really concerning again the marcus rashford one rashford one if anyone doesn't know people who are listening from abroad um england had a policy not to feed school children you know during the holidays during the pandemic which is really unfortunate because it was given to them before and it got taken away from them for the half term or the 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 winter the autumn break and now the the christmas holidays and so on so a fam- very famous footballer fought for their right and basically pushed the government to fund this bill right that would feed children it's probably important to add that he's a quite a young black he's 23 man. yeah he's 23 yeah. but he was raised in poverty himself so he knows what it's like to be hungry again this goes to and and it's very alarming how can you how can you be against such a position how can you how can you argue against feeding children and that again is and that again is food justice and if if your stance on that is in opposition to such a policy 
you really got a question like forget this whole lefty righty thing what does justice look like so i was just gonna add to that that for argument's sake i think it also comes down to your perspective slash ethos the idea of sarbat is just never ending in that no matter what we are praying for what we are asking for however you want to define it like we are always asking for the benefit of absolutely everything and anyone yeah and and on the flip side i again if you're not blessed with that that quite unique seek understanding i don't think you kind of naturally just take to it modern society is actually just angry and i think in all fairness a lot of the reaction to it is emotional rather than actually rational because actually rationally when you think about it why wouldn't you want your government to eat, feed starving kids yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's not it's not just that. I mean, I mean there are countless examples I could give. I could I could explain or I can discuss policies or things that concern government policies again on on deportations, incredibly violent, horrific acts of, you know, torture and so on. You know, and this extends to a lot of other things, you know. How do we what what how do we apply Sikh philosophy or slick Sikh, Sikh principles of justice in where we can identify injustice? And injustice extends way beyond, you know, just the Sikh Sangat and globally speaking, on the on the world scale, what does you know, where do we see injustice and how do we respond to mitigate that injustice? We know there's gonna be injustice, but how do we kind of address that? Whether it's you know, I'll tell you one thing that if we want to talk about history, especially because obviously that's the, the context of the, and the backdrop of this conversation, because, you know, I administer the page sick archive and so on. Even when we look at something like historical justice. Now, if we look at historical justice, if we have a colonial British colonial reading of Sikh history, we go up in arms about that, right? We say, no, it wasn't like that. That's not the case. We challenge it. We form institutions that kind of redress those injustices. We say, no, we will make universities. We would produce like academies, scholars to kind of say otherwise. We would kind of do a huge campaign to find out what justice is. You know, when people say Bindalawale was a terrorist, and this is a historical, not just a historical inaccuracy, but a historical injustice. It's a misrepresentation of our history. Or if you say, for example, you know, all these other things, you know, then we respond to that and we say, hey, I'm going to try to achieve justice here and re-correct or correct or re-reformulate what you're trying to say. Or we have a battle of narrative that takes place. And of course, we want a just narrative to triumph. And I think if we can see parallels between the the zealous sick Twitter or like zealous sick Instagram that wants to achieve historical justice, just try to extend what that means in terms of the economic sense, political sense, social sense. And, you know, and it will start to crystallize, it'll start to realize that actually what I'm saying or it's it's not entirely um I mean it's 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 open to criticism but this idea of just throwing the word oh you know you're a lefty or this and that it doesn't really hold much water you know 
Yeah, so what I wanted to say on your point there was that, again, going back to this whole idea about left wing and right wing, I think, you know, when we discuss issues about racism and we get one person saying they're a racist or they have racist viewpoint and another one has has an anti-racist viewpoint, we we live in this world where what is the right thing to do is consider their opinions 50-50. And I think that's really wrong. I don't think that we should, you know, equally weigh this idea that someone wants to kill you because of the color of your race and someone wants to just live free because of the color of race. It's not, it's not, these are not all equally weighted considerations of society. You know, it doesn't work like that. And I think that's where this whole left wing and right wing things falls into place as well. I think that contributes to it at least. And this idea about, you know, the construction of a military identity in a Sikh I think Shabat had a really good um, answer on your podcast last week where he said, you know, individually speaking, that these people are, are symptoms. These, individually speaking, these people are symptoms of the system. They are either there because they're economically compelled, maybe through poverty, maybe through lots of um, debt because of agricultural rights and so on. Lots of other things about, you know, if you were the first son, especially the division of Kirt and Punjab, which was a big thing, you know, if you were the first son, maybe you would get cared you would get the rights to the land and then if you were the second child you would um, become a police officer or join the military and then if you were a third one maybe you would migrate and this led to a lot of migration this led to a lot of enlistment in Punjab to become either a police officer or a military those are pretty much your two secure forms of income and uh, and and uh, life choices a lot of the life choices in Punjab for young men and um, you know again it's a it's a legacy of British British colonial systems but so again individually speaking a lot of these people are economically or maybe politically compelled or and so on no, no one really makes a free choice anyway in, and that's another philosophical discussion but no one really makes a free choice there's no such thing as you know a free choice but what i was trying to say is that individually speaking shabbat makes a good point that these people are just symptoms of the system so there's no individual criticisms per se but the systems itself are incredibly violent uh, incredibly oppressive and you know, we are training people to kill innocent people. That's 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 what the military does. And I think a lot of those things are far, far, far removed. You know, if you showed a, if I showed if you showed a, a Sikh guy wearing a firefighter uniform, you'd feel proud. You know, he he saves innocent people. And and you think you know, if you show a doctor wearing you know, if you start show, show or parade a Sikh person as a doctor, you say, you know what, this guy saves lives. He changes and fixes people's hearts. He can maybe be a brain surgeon. He makes sure that they have a secure way of living, you know. But if you show a Sikh person in a military uniform, what? nothing really comes to your mind. You get this kind of blank, empty void and you think, you know, you just have this sudden vacuous, you know, uh, sense of pride. Well, it depends. I would, I would again. Uh, Some let's let, let's say the. If I can say, I personally would find it quite conflicting. I, I find it really interesting when I'm finding images of Sikhs within the British military or whatever military is fighting in all these historic wars. Going back to Shubhad's conversation last week, he made a really good point about how kind of the First World War. Sorry, the First World War is basically 
the result of Europe being yeah it was a battle of African colonies yeah, yeah. and kind of this this essentially a family a family feud um, and then how like the second world war was slightly again I kind of challenged it slightly by saying I think Hitler pretty much turned colonialism into Europe in terms of he was finding Lebensraum for Germans he was doing what all the Europeans were doing um, but he was doing it within the confines of Europe which for them was like like how dare you but then again I think on the individual basis yeah you start to question the systems that put those people in those places why they made those decisions again another interesting thing which I've been reading into a lot about is how especially Heather Street's book about how Sikhs were I wouldn't necessarily go as far as saying manipulated, but they were essentially marketed very cleverly in order to drum up uh, further numbers. Again, to wage colonial wars. Do you see, like, and I think I get a lot of beef for this, and I'm sure you all do, you do as well, but um, they weren't fighting their wars. Like, I, 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 so for argument's sake, I'm sure everyone's heard of the statue they're going to build in Wolverhampton of a Sikh soldier. And at first... When I read it, I went, well, okay, it will do a lot for the image of a Sikh within Britain. On the flip side, I also think that it commemorates a very particular image within a very particular space for a very particular audience, which I think is kind of diametrically opposed to what it means to be a Sikh. And I think, again, when you see images of Sikh soldiers pre-colonialism, so uh, some early photos by, for argument's sake, Felix Beta of, of Sikhs who fought in the mutiny against the British, you're kind of like, damn... He had balls the size of elephants. Again, it comes down to your historical interpretation and what you think is correct or incorrect. But I think that that use of the example of looking at a Sikh soldier is very, it's quite a um, poignant way of illustrating the point that actually what does it mean to be Sikh and how do we interact with these, glo- these global wider structures that actually influence us on perhaps ways we don't necessarily appreciate. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you... Uh, let's let's put it like this, right? There are more Sikhs in poverty than there are middle, like, upper-class Sikhs. That's just a fact. You know, there are many more Sikhs that are working class than there are maybe upper-middle-class or elite Sikhs. And that just generally seems to be the case in, in most uh, societies and groups and people. But let's just let's look at the Sikhs, but... We don't call ourselves a poverty race. We don't call ourselves a working class race. You know, there are more Sikhs who are of lower caste or something like that, you know, but we don't call ourselves a scheduled caste race. We don't call ourselves a Dalit race, you know. We, there, there are more Sikhs who are... I could give countless examples um, in terms of... Maybe there are more... Uh, let's say, for example, in a world, for argument's sake, there are more sick women than there are sick men. We don't call ourselves a feminine race. It's not really a numbers game. It's more about these dominant narratives that continue to exist. This martial idea, this martial narrative, and, and, and how this was identity was constructed and how it was perpetuated, we don't call ourselves... like There are lots of, uh, there are lots of sick Dalits. Um, we don't call ourselves a sweeper race, even though they have similar migration patterns and similar populations and Punjab and all these things. We don't want to assert our identity to, to those things because we feel that there's no kind of... There's no privilege in that. I mean, we you see Instagram and you see all the other things with Sikhs, with 
Bentleys and houses and mansions and we have these elite CEOs and business successful businessmen that are six and things like this there are a very minute minority of six actually have those wealth statuses and so on but they are the dominant projected image of what it means to be a sick largely because there's an undercurrent there of things such as like integration things such as an alignment to whiteness and and society and 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 what it means to be a, a good sick and all these things there's so many undercurrents going on there it's really interesting about what these identities and who these identities are actually serving so again if i talk about this uh, this gets quite challenged quite a lot because they'll say no but you know in good times we were warriors and and all these things like that but how I was just going to add actually and I'm glad that you brought this up but just a caveat which is I think the personally speaking I think the martial tradition within the Sikh philosophy ethos however you want to quote it is distinctively different to the Sikh martial race theory that was or the martial race theory and how that kind of incorporates Sikh martial tradition post colonialism I think they are two completely diametrically opposed identities and I think actually the British did a brilliant job at manipulating the former into the latter because we are still ha- like the conversation that you're talking about is reflective of it they put these policies in place pretty much as soon as the mutiny kicked in and obviously they realized well from what i've read from the book so far essentially they realized that um they couldn't trust bengalis essentially or or, or soldiers from bengal and looked to punjab or looked to punjab essentially because on the whole from what they understood Sikhs just didn't mutiny against them, partly obviously because they didn't want to put another Mughal emperor on the throne. Um, however, it's just interesting to see how deeply ingrained that ideology has become. Now, uh, this is obviously going to probably be a difficult opinion for people to digest. Again, going back to this idea about what justice looks like and how it's at conflict with the Sikh opinion. But um Jagaraj from uh, Basics of Sikhi made a video um on YouTube to say you know should Sikhs have nuclear weapons and he said yep yeah. uh you know if Sikhs want to compete on the world stage of global powers and we are our nation then we should have nuclear weapons now nuclear weapons the idea of nuclear weapons again they came much later than Sikhi the 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 imagination of nuclear weapons was not available you know back then no one could fathom what a nuclear weapon was capable of but if you described it how would you describe what a nuclear weapon does it indiscriminately kills millions of people not only does it do that but it leaves nuclear waste and radiation for thousands of years that will decay and form deformed innocent babies and and destroy civilizations and these what this mass degree of injustice encapsulated in this atomic bomb why would you why would you endorse that i i find it i find it beyond me but of course you know it's it's a hard i can't believe but it's a hard uh, it's a hard argument to make with maybe sick sick instagram but don't you think distinctively the difference is is that we are actually rejecting the nation state system that has been constructed in the modern era we're actually saying that that system is inherently flawed and actually the the, the main point is is we're just feeding by for argument's sake suggesting we have a nuclear 
uh, arsenal. We're actually just feeding into the current structure and the current system, which is by default inherently not left wing because you're not trying to change anything. You're not trying to reform. You're not trying to. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are people that argue with me and say, look, six in the military or six in you know who have these opinions that kind of you know for, uh, cozy up to the nation state are actually doing a great service for the sick bunt in general. Like it's some sort of trickle down sick bunt, you know, integration, economics, whatever. Like, you know, if we get six on the inside or, you know, we want to kind of uh, support the sick bunt as a community. So, you know, we'll have Harjit Sajjan as the defense minister of Canada um, and completely relegate his past you know, to the ash heap of history, because we say, you know, forget what he did in Afghanistan, forget maybe the innocent people or the things that he was trained to do and kill and, you know, confront innocent people and all these things, just relegate that to the past and say that what he's putting him on the world stage is for the furtherance of the Sikh Qom or the Sikh diaspora, which has really absolutely no evidence whatsoever. But again, it's this very extrapolated, uh, hyperbolic imagination of the furtherance of the Sikh Qom and what that looks like. And for me personally, I, again, I just take a pro-justice position and I want to see what that looks like, you know. And there was an interesting um, quote actually in the Cynthia Mahmood book where, where she interviews Karkus from 1984. And they said, one of them said, you know, one of the questions was, you know, what do you see after you achieve Khalistan? And their responses were, we would send, you know, 5,000 soldiers to Somalia and Kosovo and liberate those people. And I think that's a real internationalist worldview of what it means to achieve justice. Because, you know, whatever people's contentions are with my views, so that's fine, you know. But I sit here at this desk while there are literal war zones going on. There are literal people dying of hunger and poverty. And, and I think that these comments or these maybe attacks or maybe these criticisms they are nothing in in comparison to what's going on out in the real world i would say you know and i and i can't i can't i just sit here and i, I can't i can't take them i can't take those comments seriously I, there's like a wider thing happening outside in the world as we sit there on our keyboards on our phones people who are like stranded in refugee camps people who are stranded you know who are starving starving who are dying at borders who are dying in the oceans and i i cannot entertain these kind of debates online um because again they don't really what they don't achieve anything uh, they don't kind of uh, they don't conform to justice and and it's a very privilege to be able to say oh look you're left wing how can you care about these people drowning and or, or who cares about bombs or dropping on the people and yeah you know you go ahead and have those opinions but i can't really entertain or stand them so yeah i think that's a fair fair retort i just wanted to ask a couple of things which is do you think that the entire left wing right wing thing within kind of seek identity whatever however you want to define it um is actually more concerned with kind of self-preservation of one's own distinct Seek identity, however you wish to explain that, in terms of being right wing, and then anything that doesn't necessarily conform to that being left wing. Yeah, I mean, to try to offer an answer to that question, I think what my what I go back to is this idea of a lot of communalism in Sikhi, in terms of you know if it doesn't affect sick people, then it's not a sick, it's not an issue. Full stop. And I think that's the wrong way to think about things. And then I think 
by default, a lot of things are relegated or, you know, old, uh, become by default so-called left-wing things. And, you know, for example, if you've got a sick businessman or a sick landlord or any of these things or sick person in the military or in, in a high government position or in a high powerful or influential, influential position in maybe the Trump administration or something like this, we find some way to justify that. And I think criticisms of that are immediately sidelined or discounted as left wing because they are counter productive to what the Qom's interests are in these people's imagination of what it means to benefit or furtherance the Qom. You know, they say don't, they don't want you to kind of even criticize people like Nikki Halley or, you know, others who are, I can't remember what the other one is called. I think something Dylan. Anyway, so what I'm trying to say is that we would find some long around the house's way to kind of, uh, to justify Hermit Dillon, I think her name is. Yeah, Hermit Dillon. She, we would find some roundabout way to justify her position or her arguments um, as some beneficiary of the Sikh nation. Arguably, that's that's where they're coming from. And I think anything beyond that is or anything other than that is considered left-wing. Now, I think, again, a brilliant thing that you've just mentioned is the term Sikh nation. And I think that in itself encapsulates everything we're talking about because, personally speaking, I don't think the term Bant translates to the term nation, especially considering like the idea of a nation-state didn't really turn up until a little bit later, especially in Europe with the Treaty of Westphalia. And I think what you said is, re is a brilliant way of actually summarizing this little bit you encapsulated it brilliantly in that last sentence so thank you for that let's move on you obviously did a mass degree which is miles away from anything to do with history uh you did a law conversion so how did you end up going from maths into history so to speak and into seek archive so yeah it's, it's it's pretty interesting because again as i mentioned before that in England, there, and I, guess, I would say maybe India as well and other countries, there is a huge pressure for people to go to university and study um, and get a degree as early as possible. And there's a real pipeline of these things, um, which have a lot of valid criticism. But equally, like in some in some respects, a lot of, you know, adv advantages. I would just say that I don't think we can really escape history. And I don't think we can, we have to confront it at some point in our lives, whether it's when the time or the moment that we have kids or when it's the moment that we have to kind of justify who we are in society or why and where we belong, especially as migrants. So I think history's always been this backdrop in people's lives that we must, we have a, an obligation to take an interest in to justify our existence again in particular emphasis uh, on being a migrant or having migrant heritage and about knowing who you are and where you come from and so on and so forth so i think in that respect it's always been a part of my life but the reason i started as a blog is just because of this idea and philosophy of having open and shared education again this is about what education justice looks like a right to education, a right to free education, you know, a right to access to information. I was listening to your uh, conversation about how you were triggered by a Sikh lecturer or a lecturer who'd given 
a six studies presentation and you were so scarred by it that you started ramblings it was so bad i still i wrote like oh man i'm sorry, sorry I'm, I'm sorry trigger i shouldn't yeah trigger it's, warning. it's like proper hard, like as in I, when I look back at it, I find it really funny that something as mundane as that lecture triggered every, like the last 10 years, so to speak. Um, but yeah, it, I guess those, you don't necessarily realize that at the time. And, and perhaps actually like, thank you to him for triggering it because, because had his lecture been excellent, I would have gone, that is brilliant. And I don't need to do anything. Equally for me, it became this idea of historical justice. I think for me, there is a dominant projection of sick history record keeping dominant largely concerns Sikh military history and that's obviously understandable because it has the records it has the political and integration will and it has all these kind of backings and and it has this support and it has this kind of huge you know mantras that kind of support it so I think there was a huge dimension of Sikh history, such as migration history, diaspora history, Sikh formations, community building and oral history and all these other other dimensions of Sikh history that are just so fascinating. And I think my mission or my objective is just, just to make them cool again, you know, like not again, actually, I don't think they were like cool before, but like just to make them cool, personalize them, humanize them, you know, you know, and, and capture the essence of these histories and stories of the six that have traveled, have walked through Iran and, and uh, through Turkey or find themselves stranded. I think there's so much richness in the history of Punjab and Sikh history and Sikh studies that I think is... I mean, I grew up in Slough and in Britain, so I find that it's incredibly shadowed, you know, or trumped by this um, military history. And I think it's a shame because, well, for one, it's not it's not the dominant it's not it's not the most popular history in terms of numbers. We you know we have so much other um, interesting and radical and divergent histories of sick, you know, history and record keeping that isn't at the forefront. You know, things like the Ghadar Party, I think one of the largest international conspiracies to overthrow the British. Great, you know, Sikhs fighting, the Azad Hind Forge, for example, or the Sikhs, uh, or even 1984 is what it's turning out to be in terms of history record keeping. It's really fascinating and it's really nice to keep up with and see how that's unfolding and, and maybe partition history, migration histories, families, personal, again, story building about community racism. That's another huge dimension about uh, anti-racism in the Sikh history. You know, uh, if you look at Blair Peach's funeral from Southall, you see Sikhs holding his casket. So much solidar solidarity there in the 1970s and 80s with the campaign of anti-racism and fascism, you know, Sikhs at the front line of a lot of these campaigns is so the working class history of the six you know you've got Mukhan Singh from Kenya the founder of the trade union movement in East Africa you've got so much radical Sikh history again sidelined or discounted and I think in terms of the justice what we were speaking about before whether it's economic social educational political I think there's a huge you know motivation inside me to follow through with historical justice and see like okay look there is more to Sikh history than this there is more Sikh history and I think 
one of the reasons when I started to archive, what one of the reasons why I think it gained a lot of popularity was I was uncovering a lot of that diversity in our Sikh history, in our hit record keeping, in our kind of storytelling, which a lot of people felt has been shadowed and I think has been missing in, in, in the headlines of what it means to record keep Sikh history. And a lot of people shared that feedback. They said, oh, you know, we don't get to see families. We don't get to hear these stories. We don't get to kind of know what happened or what was happening on, on migration stories and all these things. We just always hear about maybe Sikhs in the army or soldiers and how that's kind of ticking enough boxes or, you know, and I think in terms of the fight for historical justice with the battle of narratives in, in trying to represent and document who the Sikhs were and who are they currently, I think there's a lot to be done. And I think I'm just contributing like a small fraction of that in some sense and to engage, engage the excitement, engage the kind of engagement with the people, loads of the Sikh diaspora that have these histories to offer, unlocking them because lots of people don't hold a value in them. Like if you talk to some Sikh women and you say, you know, what were you doing when, when you came here first? How did you get the recipes? They would say stuff like, stuff like you know, we would drive four hours to go to Shepherd's Bush just to get like, you know, a whole month or two months supplies of garam masala. In Canada, they would go for days because some of those drives were so long. And of course, you know, we, we don't hold a lot. Of, and I want to say we, I mean, predominantly speaking, we don't really uh, um, offer or kind of align any kind of social value or historical value to those narratives. But of course, they come to fruition much later when we discuss racism, when we discuss wealth inequality, when we discuss kind of health justice, and when we talk about kind of racial and migration justice, citizenship, borders, uh, migration uh, stories, heritage stories, you know, when we start to discuss all these things like that, these these pockets of history that become unlocked have this value. And again, I, I think for a long time growing up, I didn't really feel that that value was adequately kind of, you know, represented. So I think Sick Archive, what I'm trying to do is, you know, showcase a lot of these histories and storytellings that resonate with the majority, I guess, with the everyday six, the working class six you know, the six that were fighting against racism, the six that kind of fight for self-determination, the six that, you know, were arguing for partition, those were that weren't arguing for partition and, and just generally trying to, I think what historical justice looks like is to represent a diverse Sikh history. So I think that's what I'm, what I'm doing and why I was motivated to do that. Touche. And just then relating that back to uh, your work and stuff, how do you find time to do that amongst having a child, a family, a job? I think a general answer to a lot of the things that you just mentioned, I mean, I could address them individually, but I think a general answer is, I think when you have a passion for these things, I think when you generally have a drive or an interest or a sincere like, kind of commitment to this project, you, I'm not trying to say that you find time. I just say that you have this, you have a reserve of energy. I mean, right now, it's almost it's like almost 12:30 here in, in Copenhagen at night. I've got work in the morning, but there's no there's there's no part of me that is resisting this idea to do this interview because of X, Y, and Z. I just I signed up to. That's because you love me, don't it? Oh yeah. I mean, I'm who else am I going to be talking to at 12:30 at night on a Thursday? You know. <laughs> but it's one of those things where it's like it it just comes naturally. I don't 
I don't force myself to do it. I don't have to convince myself to do it. I don't have to, you know, like battle myself inner self to make me want to do these things. I mean, it's not like the dishes, you know, it's like, I mean, I do the dishes every night, you know, I do the dishes every day and I do the dishes maybe twice a day, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't like, I, I don't identify it as my passion. Right. And I think like, I have to battle myself to do those things. I have to draw that kind of willpower to do those things. I think with doing sick stuff like sick archive, all I'm doing is just regurgitating a knowledge. I am actually re um, producing primary work here with the Sikhs in Denmark, but generally speaking, I'm just reading stuff and reproducing it in a, in a way that, in a way that is strategically aligned to empower and incite and engage others in this subject of Sikh history. And that's actually, again, my passion for education, my passion for teaching and pedagogy about kind of sharing values about, you know, passing on knowledge. You know, back then there was no even such thing as like plagiarism. It was just considered sharing knowledge. And I think even, you know, what we currently perceive knowledge to be how we even private property, you know, even this idea of privatized education and all these things like that and having paywalls and it's just inherently doesn't really fit well with me and i think if i if i buy the book and i can offer everything that it's about if i do a podcast with the author and that's so you get a good grasp of what the book's about or what what was behind the scenes what was going on the amount of effort and value that went behind this book or the study itself i mean those lecture series that i'm doing now at podcasts my podcasts are more lecture based right so they're really driven to just get as much education out of them as possible so that people can have a more critical outlook on the world of Sikh and Punjabi history. And there's a, and there are so many other beneficiaries to that, right? There are so many others other than me. If I, I, I find it difficult to understand that, like even someone like yourself, if you read all these books and you gain all this knowledge, like, and then what? So what? Like, what do you do with it? That's the most important thing. And I think... Anything that you choose to do with it, good or bad, I think excites the kind of the, the engagement of jostling with Sikh history and Punjabi history and just trying to make sense of it, you know, but challenging people's narratives, understanding this, like maybe start anything, maybe start a blog, maybe start a, a YouTube page, maybe do something, maybe anything that just contributes to the ether of knowledge making, you know, because actually... As someone who's interested in history, every person that speaks of history or documents history is by definition rewriting history, by definition. There was a great quote, I can't remember who it's by, but it was basically saying that historians simply continue to debate until they come to an agreed set of facts, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly my point. Um, and I think that going back to the original question about, you know, how and find time and all these things like that. I just have a passion for education. I have a passion for Sikhi and, and naturally history falls part of that. Yeah, no, definitely. I also was going to mention that one of the textbooks that we were given when we started our history degree, um, I still remember the, the, the starting paragraph, which was basically saying that every group, every collective has a shared history however they don't have a shared memory and what that and essentially what what it's arguing is, is for argument's sake you and i can go through or say for argument's sake our 
families have all gone through some form of migration. And you could therefore argue that obviously their histories are somehow connected. However, then when you break it down, obviously, you find out it's just completely disparate or very different. However, I think the great thing with you, with the work that you do with Sikh Archive is, is that you're bringing out histories from like a collective memory that mainstream Sikh slash Punjabi history has for various reasons ignored and not paid attention to. So I think one of the posts you put out the other day was about Sikh women in history um, and how we're given a very particular image and given very particular examples of Sikh women in history. And, and I had to comment on it in relation to the fact that I think we are, we're influenced, I think our history is influenced by a number of things. Fundamentally, Victorian attitudes. Secondly, obviously colonialism. And then third, everything that comes in the 20th century in terms of World War One, World War Two, partition, independence, 1984. I know that's obviously a hell of a lot to, to, to try and cram into kind of like 10 second overview. And, and again, I think just bringing it back to the stuff you're doing, it's brilliant because you're bringing out those memories from those communities that have that are still there, obviously, because you're, you're able to bring out this this information. And then putting that history out to a, a global audience. And it's and it's amazing to see the impact it has on others. So for argument's sake, just going back to the, the one you posted about Sikh women in history, we're definitely given a very puritanical image of how and what Sikh women are. So for argument's sake, just giving you a quick example, I was reading some uh, Vikil reports from Rajasthani kings around 1708. So Guru Gobind Singh has kind of just passed like on. Bahadur Shah, I think, has just died as well. And they're actually talking about, I think, I, I can't remember whether it was Guru Gobind Singh's mother or Guru Gobind Singh's wife. But one of them had adopted a son called Ajit Singh. And all of the Vakil reports are basically confused because they're like, where has this Ajit Singh come from? They call him the Guru. They're like, where has this Guru Ajit Singh come from that Mata has adopted? Like, what the hell is going on? When you read into it and dig into it deeper, it actually turns out that the Sikh community pretty much ostracized him because he tried to set himself up as the Guru. And in the end, I think, however, that completely like... I, I never, I've never heard of it. Like until I had read the the original kind of source, I never even knew of that. And, if, and again, it conforms to a very Victorian, very kind of puritanical view of what and how women should be constructed. Um, and and the thing that I really appreciate with the stuff you do is is that you bring out those really kind of finer niche points. So for argument's sake, Sikh women in history and how, or just women in Sikhi and how that is constructed and how that works and in, and and interplays with stuff. So yeah, like please carry on with it yeah i mean listening to what you were saying it's one of the reasons why i um i'm doing the virtual exhibitions because with sick archive i completely chose to wipe the page and i was like wanted to strategize the interface for sick archive to be able to you know offer education because there was no point, there was no strategy behind having a picture of a sing in the 1970s with like bell-bottom jeans and in the next post being something like a sick woman being deported from Toronto, right? By the, yeah, by yeah. the agencies. And I was like, okay, this is not doing it right. We have a lot of history. We have a lot of kind of justice. We have a kind of lot of trauma in these photos and what is attached in the meaning to these histories. And I think 
and when I started to do that, and then I did this virtual exhibition on women, Sikh women in history, we were able, really able to concentrate and focus the attention on the nuances and these niches that you describe, because we had like a focus on them, you know, we had a spotlight on them and we were able to use the collective brain power of the following to advance the discourse on these particular topics. Um, and I think that is what it's about because I think, and, and I don't mean to say like what separates me from the rest, but I feel like there's lots of sensationalism online or, or the current techniques or strategies that it's like, it's like clickbaiting basically is what the internet's turned into. Yeah. And I think I'm not trying to do that. I think someone messaged me the other day actually and said, Hey, you know, this strategy that you have on Instagram, it's not working. It's not great. Um, it's not good for followers and all these things. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. But that goes back to this idea of the reason I wipe them is so that they actually have this essence of value so that it's like if I was teaching a whole class or I gave a lecture and not a single person wrote something down. How, like physically in the real world how would you feel and when you when you walk away when that happens so you you prepare this material you you post it you curate the page everything like that and then you get these like hundreds of likes which you could probably equate to maybe attendance you know in a lecture and then no one writes anything down there's no discourse there's no kind of a there's no critical discussions there not there's no seminars you could say you know there's no engagement and you think to yourself this is just being bastardized you know this is being sensationalized this content and i felt like that wasn't doing that was a huge disservice to our history and i think yeah drawing focus to it it's counterproductive again to the social media algorithms and everything like that but then at the same time i think it's a bigger injustice of what it would mean for the actual content itself i mean you're most welcome to screen grab it, copy and paste it, produce a google document but the physical action of having to do something about it is part of the learning, is part of the education, is part of the muscle memory. It's like when we make notes and we write and we attend a lecture or we do anything like that, the physical act of doing those things, of waking up in the morning, taking your morning commute so you can attend your morning lecture, going to that, you're building and you're, you're establishing a memory, you know, that, that whether it's muscle memory, whether it's like kind of mental memory, all of these things that contribute to excuse me the entire cycle of learning and i think i i think scrolling your thumb is not pedagogy i think scrolling your thumb is not kind of there's no skin in the game there's no kind of you know you know that expression nothing worth having comes easy and i think i don't i, I don't want tens of thousands of followers it's not that it's actually more this idea that look there are some people doing some really important work that have particular focuses on it i think there needs to be a particular focus on this uh, where we can kind of curate a strategy to encourage genuine listeners and learners to come on board and be inspired by sick history. And that's why I think um, they've t it's working out pretty well. It's working out just fine. Uh, I don't think I've had any kind of major drastic changes to like the followers or anything or the engagement. If anything, it's gone quite up. Um, and I think it's just again about having this philosophy of what your content means, what's your end game, and what are you trying to do 
for the community what is it that you're trying to achieve you know and that's why i do what i do if i'm totally honest with you and that's why i'm doing it in that way and you know it was one of the reasons why i've actually come off social media because you may have noticed that i've started to lend the page out to a lot of people and i just wanted to actually close on this point about the six of denmark research that i'm doing when i came here to denmark and i realized that there was a, a very established Sikh community here in denmark i started to document their history their oral history i took their you know the images from the photo albums and i you know i was able to showcase like and document the timeline of the six in denmark and that's been a huge huge monumental responsibility on my shoulders to be able to tell the story of the six of denmark those that first came how they came what their storytelling was how they established the community how they responded to 1984 how they responded to 2001 how are they responding now to this kind of you know d- digital era coronavirus all the things that you can you know post social media and how did the generations and in- the families survive there are, there are countless countless narratives that i'm documenting and one of the reasons why i decided to do kind of become less and less involved in social media is just because that this work holds more value than having millions and millions of followers because it's again vacuous it means nothing because this is where the real work is happening in terms of archiving stories in terms of documenting lives so that hundreds from years of now maybe 200 years someone some maybe a gaudy with slightly brown hazel eyes can ask herself like who the hell was my great 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 grandfather and then hear his voice by accessing accessing the royal national archives of denmark and learning that you know their grandfather came from punjab he walked through iran iraq you know reading the transcripts of the interviews that i did and looking at the images of when they first came i think that is more valuable than any kind of social media page or any of these things and i think the social media pages and these platforms should be secondary to whatever you're doing it should be secondary so for example like if you have a, if you have a car garage or you're a mechanic your social media page should be secondary to the work that you're doing so that it kind of supports the primary work that you're doing and i think as a as someone who's recording this history of the six of denmark i'm simply just using like you know those podcasts i'm doing the reason i'm doing them or the reason i got into doing them is because i'm i've got all this storytelling but i don't know anything about the history of punjab i am not a historian i don't i'm not an anthropologist i don't know anything about migration patterns I don't know I've learned a lot on the way but I didn't know any of these things so I'm asking people you know why 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 did you come from Punjab I are you the oldest in your siblings are you in the middle and I and you know I Karen uh, Professor Karen Leonard gave me that guidance because she said oh you know if you find out which order of the family they are it kind of suggests to you already if they're going to be a migrant or if they're going to be a farmer or if they're going to join the military or the police and all these things like that and tells you of and you know uh doing a podcast with uh, professor Radhika Chopra who described to me about the impact the green revolution had because there's a policy in the green revolution that if you have you know um five acres of land or less you don't kind you know you don't really get the privileges of like farmer rights as you did to benefit from the green revolution policies so that they couldn't really divide the kit according to the siblings so that they really encouraged a lot of migration out and and all of this is happening in the 60s and 70s when a lot of the punjabis were coming to england and europe 
And then you got to think to yourself like, oh shit, you know, I didn't know any of that. I can't contextualize the knowledge that I'm capturing. So a lot of the podcasts actually just came as actually secondary because it's supporting the work that I'm doing for the Six of Denmark. It's making sense of the caste dimensions, which I was not familiar with. Why are there Ravidasias in Vienna? Why are there so many Ravidasias in Vienna, you know? Why are, uh, what is the, what are the caste dimensions or elements of the six in Denmark? Why, what are the gender balances? What are the migration patterns? How do they connect with the diaspora? What is the transnationalism? All these kind of terms and theories that you have to kind of can help to contextualize this sociological and anthropological study. Um, I just, I have just completely gone into and been, you know, I have dived into um, and it's the podcast helped me support that uh, conversations like this helped me support that uh, to understand the Punjab political, social, uh, economical history of Punjab migration patterns and so on and so forth. And I think that again, the social media, all of these things just come secondary. All of these things come secondary. And I think I've found my calling uh, in terms of what I can contribute to the field of maybe six studies or Punjabi studies. Um, and I've really kind of realized what matters. And, and I don't think social media is one of them, but it, it, it's important and it really helps to engage. And you can if you can really strategize and facilitate it to be a social utility um, if you do it well. Yeah, and I think your point about the fact that the pages should be secondary in terms of the primary work that you're doing, the page should just be simply kind of just spreading the message rather than that being your concern in, in its primary kind of sense. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's where I really kind of feel really strongly about, if I'm honest. Fair enough. I, I completely appreciate that. Um, you must have to get through a lot of material in order to keep up with the work that you do do and the conversations that you have, um, and especially if you're talking to people who have written books, um, doctors, lecturers, etc., researchers. Um, what would you say perhaps is the most influential book that you've read? And secondly, what book are you reading at the moment? Well, there, there are some really, really good uh, influential books. I think The Spirit Level is one of them. It's a good book on inequality. I think Malcolm X's autobiography is another inspirational book. There's a life changer. You know what I find really interesting is, is that two out of the three people that I've spoken to so far in this podcast series have both pointed out Malcolm X in one shape, form or another. But yeah, I, I, I love the fact that I'm not the only one. Yeah, um... Simulation Simulacra, uh, Jean Baudrillard, postmodernist book uh, about you know perceptions of reality. It was the the book that kind of underpinned the Matrix film, the trilogy. Um, there are there are a few books that I, that, that come to mind actually. Um, I think Professor Karen Leonard's book, Making Ethnic Choices, really kind of um, captured my 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 kind of interest for like Sikh and Punjabi history. Um, what other books are there? I think uh, Hajjot Singh Overy's book, uh, Relig Construction of Religious Boundaries. I think that's also. I think that book is just, it is, it is 
I don't know how else to explain it to be like, you know, in your uh, emoji thing, there's that little one of like the head explosion. Like that's the only way I can describe that book. I think you have to have a lot of, you either have to be really open-minded or you have to have a lot of wider, like further understanding to really get to grasp and to, with what that book is saying. Otherwise, I think um, you will be very, very kind of upset otherwise. Yeah, I like uh, The Radical King, which is a collection of essays of Martin Luther King. Uh, I think it was uh, compiled together with by Cornel West. Um, I like... Oh, what is another book that I like? A lot of the books that I read for the podcast are really good as well. Actually, all the authors I would recommend Annihilation of Cast, Dr. Ambedkar's uh, any work by Dr. Ambedkar is, is, is monumental, like highly recommended. Yeah, these are, uh, I mean, all, again, all the books that I've read for the podcast are also really good. And there's just countless, actually, that I can name. Rev- uh, yeah, uh, Professor Karma McLean's book about the revolutionary history of interwar India. That was really fascinating. Um, really want to discuss that on Discourse with some of the followers of Sikh Archive. And what book are you reading currently, if anything? Or what was the last book that you read? I am... Oh, wait, I should forgot to mention um, Faith and Nation with Cynthia Mahmood was uh, a good book as well. I'm currently reading the 18th century uh, six, uh, which is by Professor Karamji Kaur Malhotra. A really good book actually explores what gender and caste and what Sikh rule was in the 18th century Punjab. Which is really fascinating because, and that's actually what my this current exhibition is on, uh, about how the Sikhs were ruling and how that affected, you know, the gender and caste dimensions under Sikhi. Touche. Um, and I guess you've kind of answered this question already. I'll ask it anyway. Is there a particular historical figure or is there a particular historical event? that you take particular inspiration from? I know you mentioned Malcolm X, but just in order to kind of um, expand that conversation, like I just wanted to perhaps put him to one side. Is there anybody else? Yeah, I mean, Malcolm X is one particular individual. I mean, his autobiography written by Alex Haley was was really good and had a huge impact on me. But in terms of uh, historical figures, I think... Probably, I would say Karl Marx. Uh, Karl Marx, you know, in terms of... You leftist. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to really piss off a lot of people. They're going to be like, ah, oh, do you know what? This guy's a leftist, man. You know what I don't get is, you know, when I say that people's criticism is like, oh, you know, for these leftists, he's like their guru. And I'm like, oh, what are you... Where, where does that come from? You know, like, what is this idea that I've... You know, lots of people say, I don't know if you've heard that as well. People are like, oh, you know... You know, for people like that, his, that's their guru and all these things. Just to uh, quickly add a plug in another book, uh, How the Irish Became White by Noel Ignative. It's a really good book. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just mention it, but I won't go too much into de- detail. But yeah, back to Karl Marx. Um, I just think he was a, one of the greatest and radical uh, thinkers and most influential thinkers of our time. Uh Especially again, as I mentioned again, uh, post-industrial revolution and, and his understanding and um, uh, conception of capital um, and how that operates and what basically things come down to. Can, can we imagine a world um, 
where we have an abolition of private property, you know, and this goes, this again goes back to this idea of discussion. It's not about being leftist. It's not about being, you know, it's just looking at a stance of justice. So for example, I went to Italy and I went to a beach and um, on, I can't remember what it's called, um, but it was a private beach. And I just thought to myself, how can you privatize a beach? You know, and I was explaining to my cousin, I said, look, this is how it works. Like, imagine, you you, you, you know, who owns an apple tree? Who actually owns an apple tree? You know, that to make the apple juice, like the resources to the world and everything like this actually belongs to the earth and the people and all these things. Like the conception of private property itself, like, you know, when you have like landlords and, you know, and someone says, this is my kid, you know, this is going to piss off a lot of maybe the juts listening to this conversation but how like actually how can you own land how can you own a kid how can, who was the first person that put a flag down and said this belongs to me because of some entitlement you know i think a lot of like social injustices and, and economic injustices come down to this idea of whether or not you know it's a birthright you know caste system is wrong because it's a lottery of where you, when you're born or where you're born who who you're born into it's a lottery of your birth therefore it's an injustice because it's an entitlement an enrichment that you you know not has not been earned uh, similarly um the, the same goes for like capital uh, monarchy you know it's it's an unjust position uh, injustice but simply because those people are born into it you don't if you have a birthright to something that is the core essence of something like that it's unfair and unjust right uh, an unjust kind of philosophy and i think the same idea of like you know private property and those that have and have not uh, an entitlement private property and under and the entire notion of private property and what it underpins is actually one of the main reasons we have we live in the world that we do and i think part of the communist and marxist uh, i say marxist philosophy is to imagine a world another where another world is possible where we don't have a notion of private property which is actually quite very 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 uh um very often found anthropologically speaking in loads of different societies you know in, in other worlds or imaginations that we can relinquish this material attachment to kind of private property where you know that that is the imagination of Karl Marx and it's something that I I, I draw inspiration from and, you know, many people might be thinking, you know, again, what a lefty, what a this and that. But if you go through the, the the chain of causation in all kind of conflicts and in terms of like, in terms of like militarism, in terms of private medicine, you know, how can you have, how can you, how can you have a, even patents, our current whole economical setup, patents, like what a construct that is like, how can you have a patent on insulin, you know, or, or paracetamol or kind of a, uh what is it called uh uh what's the anti-infection one called uh no biot antibiotics um and and these things like that how can you have a patent on these things like um how can you have a patent on solar power how can you have a patent on wind energy and all these other resources who owns oil and all these other things that uh basically what we are battling for the battle of resources and yeah, I mean, again, if you want to have a, like a just outlook of the world, 
you want to kind of inspect it to see what the root cause of it is. And it's basically the notion of private property, I think. And, and, and how we view and navigate private property is a real indicator of what we define as justice. And I think that's that's where I draw inspiration from. I come from the, you know, reading Karl Marx and reading, understand, having a quick worldview of what is property? What is private property? How can you privatize a forest? You know, who has entitlement to what? Is it a birthright? And a lot of these things are evident in the caste system. So if you're anti-casteist and you say, you know what, I'm a Sikh and I'm anti-casteist, you must be anti this idea that someone is given a birthright. You know, someone is given a birthright to be in a certain position of power or political kind of influence or have an entitlement over land and ownership of people of labor of resources and all these things like that there are loads of things in our in our um, the way that we live now that are complete constructs complete constructs that only continue to kind of perpetuate poverty and again this goes to this idea that i think you spoke with shabbat last time on this podcast about how we are constructing a sikh identity now especially currently you know post 1984 and post-2001, where we're really constructing this sick, charitable image of who we are. Um, and it's again, it's a complete construct, but it's it, it just it's it's plastering, it's literally just bandaging these institutional and you know top-down models that continue and perpetuate our own oppression. And I think, you know, yeah, you go you you can maybe feed some people here and there and you can do this but the actual praxis you know the actual praxis of implementing a radical revolution in terms of like uprooting systems which is inherently sicky in its history um challenging the the structures of powers that exist uh and understanding the frameworks and 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 diagnosing those right as opposed to maybe just plastering here or there, donating here or there, offering solidarity here or there, online activism and all these things like that. Um, we know what does praxis look like? This is someone, uh, um, Paulo Ferreira, who wrote the book uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, writes about a lot is what do these things look like in practice and how do we kind of challenge injustices, like in, in especially in the educational sense and what do our educational systems do do we, you know, and that's why when you have, for example, um, six that join the British Army and then they're stationed in Iraq um, and we celebrate that, you know, they're, they're, they're killing innocent people for the private property. We know this is a war about oil and natural resources and the kind of domination of the markets and things like this um, and how this is perpetuated. And of course, people don't want to look into those conversations because it challenges their visual identity of what it means to be a Sikh. And and it kind of, it's a perversion of what their perception of reality is. And it's, it's difficult to digest. And all I would encourage to your readers is to have kind of that kind of, that understanding, that outlook on what is it currently happening in the world, the world frameworks, and how radically different that is from the Guru's times and especially after Industrial Revolution and how we must really radically rethink or have a stance on things as a Sikh community or as individuals and the Sangat. You know, do can, can the Gurdwaras come together 
and say, look, we're doing longer, but for fuck's sake, can we start talking about austerity? Can we, you know, can we, can we have, can we hold the government account to austerity measures? Austerity is like the worst thing that has happened to Britain, like in these last ten years. The the, po the post two thousand and eight financial crisis and the amount of um, destitution that's left in the country as a result of that, and the austerity measures that followed. You know, Langer, people coming to Langer is great, and we can celebrate that, but it's a symptom. You know, in an ideal world, we don't want people to come to Langer, and it's, it's you probably maybe some of your listeners are finding that hard to digest, but it's like this idea that you know, a firefighter. In an ideal world, we don't want firefighters. In an ideal world, you know this idea that you know we don't we 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 don't want these things to exist. We want to conform to its abolition. We want to end hunger. You know, so having people coming to the langar is great, and but it's a symptom of something else. They people are coming to eat langar is a symptom, right? Um, and I think we have to start. Going deeper in our conversations, deeper in our critical conversations and discourses, it's one of the reasons why I've got Professor Ronki Ram uh, from Punjab University to talk about caste because I'm not talking about Bangra songs. I'm not talking about you know, um, you know, caste jokes or like some you know hashtag or social media posts. I'm talking about the agricultural landscape of Punjab that perpetuates caste, the sick missiles that perpetuate caste. The the caste history and uh, the, uh, the 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 notion of the Sikh band and 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 the Singh Sabha lair and all these things. When you say Sikh missiles and caste, what like what do you mean in particular? Just the consolidation of power and the consolidation of wealth and and what did that mean for you know how did that result in the the scheduled or lower caste Sikhs and and how did that did that come to their benefit or not and how did they reproduce caste philosophies and so on. Interesting. It'd be really, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. That'd be really interesting to know. I, I mean, that's what I just want to. Uh, I want to direct conversations towards and discourses towards and encourage that and entertain that. Anyone that kind of has that kind of thinking, looking into structures and trying to fight for justice in any shape or form, whether it's historical, educational, physical, like social and political, economical justice and conforming to that and seeing what that looks like in today's world, you know, um, it's fine to uh, understand, like we, it's a difficult to help refugees and then at the same time endorse the military. I think just a personal anecdote to share with you that I think encapsulates the mentality of a lot of Punjabi Sikh people, the reason we're in Britain is because our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents migrated at some point or may all in, in the diaspora, they migrated at some point. And obviously, like everyone knows, like you actually commented about it earlier in terms of Blair Peach, the South or riots and, and all of the racism that um, Sikhs faced. Anyway, we were sat in a very close friend's house. Um, unfortunately, he's now passed away, but... Um, we were sat there and this was at the time kind of there was a big influx of Eastern Europeans into into uh, England. And I remember him sitting there essentially just slagging off Romanians and being like, how dare they come to this country? They ain't got no jobs. They don't do this. Like the typical standard, like short sighted criticisms that everyone kind of tries to throw out. And I was like, uncle, don't you remember 
that you were once a Fuji? And he was like, oh yeah. And I'm like, well, how can you like, how can you so quickly forget like the, the path you tread? And now all of a sudden you want to pick up that path because you don't want anyone else to tread on it. Like what happened to the entire ideology of Sajabat let alone anything else. But like what happened to that? Um, and if you're coming over here for whatever economic benefit, whatever the case might be, like what or who has given you the right all of a sudden to restrict that for somebody else yeah i mean with these anecdotes and things like that again this goes back to this idea that i mentioned very much early in the beginning of the conversation that you know we don't actually have free will and then what i meant by that is that a lot of our opinions and a lot of the things that we're going to say a lot of the things that we're going to do a lot of the things that we kind of uh, project our maybe emotions or project our opinions or in those like anecdotes that you describe a lot of that is derivative from you know environmental circumstances so it could be maybe his colleagues and they could be he could be reproducing maybe what his colleagues are saying he could reproduce what the sun is saying he could reproduce what bbc is telling him he could reproduce and of course these reproductions come with maybe other biases with alignment to power and all those other things like that Maybe there's some sort of social currency attached to having this opinion, right? No, I don't disagree with that. And and I think that's uh, it's a really poignant point to make because the context of why people make certain decisions is fantastic. However, I don't think that we can remove personal responsibility from it. Yeah, and I think especially when it comes to conversations about accountability you know and that's what i mean by you know like what is reproducing what is actually happening and and that's why i look into systems and understand that you know the reason we look into systems is because if <laughs> this is unfortunate because you said your friend passed away but if, if people that hold these opinions or views and everything do pass away then they will be reproduced because they will resurface these opinions won't die you know so for example if you if if we if, if every single racist disappears off this planet tomorrow they will resurface in weeks and months and years to come because that is what is given we are giving birth to right and that's the way the frameworks that have been set up or aligned to kind of you know reproduce I mean, there's a reason why we, we can't get rid of racism. There's a reason we can't get rid of casteism. There's a reason we can't get rid of sexism. There's a reason why inequality is like basically just a huge uphill climb is simply because no matter how much you feed the poor, no matter like how much, you know, even if you fed every single poor person today, gave them a full stomach that these hunger or poverty or casteist or sexist or racist or all these other systems or, or, or of discrimination and, and and yeah just this idea that you know these all these other symptoms will just be resurfacing after weeks and months um and that's what i'm trying to get at when i look when i talk about systems in particular no i wouldn't disagree with that fair point just tying it back into seek archive we haven't necessarily delved into that much we've spoken about a hell of a lot um but not necessarily kind of related like per se so, first of all, where do you see Seek Archive heading? Like, what is the overall objective? Obviously, you do these exhibitions that serve a really good purpose in terms of bringing out these kind of lesser known histories. 
to the forefront and getting everyone to engage. Um, is that kind of the, the end game? Well, it's more to it than that. Because I think with Sick Archive, it started off as a blog, a very trivial blog, sharing and sensationalizing images of Sikh history, of migration history, of religious history, of, you know, agendered history and all these things. And in a complete random order without any strategy. And that was like that for the for the first two years that attracted a lot of supporters and that attracted a lot of kind of you know mainstream thinking and and kind of followership where people would be attracted to it it was sensationalized content and i think we've gone far away from that we like we've gone quite far from that in in advancing this project then it became this idea of like okay now we've got this community on board on social media how uh, where can we kind of encourage longevity in the project so we did google calendar which reminds everyone what happened on this day in sick history and i go through newspapers i go through books i go through all the archives and i dig out significant dates of what happened so that can form a calendar and it's a digital calendar people subscribe to it they can export it it's on google calendar it has a huge ton of data and a potential to be a very large project beyond me and i think that's the kind of the thing that i'm trying to get at here is that anything that we should focus on on sick archive or any of these kind of projects how does it exist beyond the administrator how can it continue to survive how can it continue to kind of uh have a have a lasting influence on people that are interested in sick history so i think the calendar application certainly does that and it's going to be there for pretty much forever um, as long as Gmail lasts and as long as people are exporting and downloading this information in the same spirit, these podcast episodes have a very, very long lasting value because they are lecture series on second Punjabi history, similar to like maybe the social utility or value that books have, but not everyone's reading. Some people prefer to be listening and want bite-sized information or at least an introduction to the topic. I did a podcast with Mark Jürgensmeyer about the Ravidasia, we scratched the surface of their history, we scratched the surface of his research, but what it will introduce people to is a goldmine of history of how to understand and contextualize Sikh history. And I think, again, looking back on the longevity of these projects, I think, you know, we're coming into this age of the digital era where we can store and mass uh, this uh, collection of catalogued information on Sikh and Punjabi history of the, of the past, present and future for a very long time in a secure way and in a way that we can really uh, lay the ground for the future. I mean, me and you, we're born in a generation where we lived both before social media. I mean, let's put it like this. We remember knocking up for people and saying, asking if they wanted to play football, right? Yeah, and then we, we 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 had playstations where you had to go around people's homes to play, like we, you know, having to like basically invite friends around. So we we we've gone through this generation where beyond before this digital revolution and slightly you know in involve, evolving into what it potentially can be. And I think we have a duty therefore to lay like some foundations for what Sikh history and Punjab history and storytelling and all these things look like in 10 or 20 or 100 years to come because i think you know that's basically what this project is going to become 
think you're right in terms of how, what it looks like. And I think just to add to, to, to what you're saying, I think the, the biggest importance of what you're doing is also how that relates to the individual. So for argument's sake, if I read like your calendar update and it says X, Y, and Z event happened on today, if I have no kind of connection with what I'm reading or no kind of understanding of kind of what's going on, it's just another historical fact. It's like another newspaper headline that I've read. But I think fundamentally, the importance of the stuff you're doing is actually how that history, and especially some of those more untold histories, how they relate to people, social structures, the wider systems that kind of influence us. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, there are direct influences. I mean, you'll see a turban case uh, in like in in November nineteen, I don't know, eighty eight or something, and then you find the same thing happening next year in another country in another year because they used the precedence on that case and you might think it's unrelated but it actually is or you see for example like uh something happened in uh politics in 1952 it happened on that day and you're like whoa that could easily happen today or hang on why does that mean oh is that related to the farmer protests well i guess a good way of signifying that is actually going back to the start of the conversation we had which is how the Japanese taking over Singapore directly impacted your family and like your history. And you're kind of like, well, actually, like you wouldn't necessarily connect those dots unless you were made aware and it was kind of brought in front of you. Yeah, exactly. And I think the calendar does that. It, it juxtaposes a lot of these histories that ran parallel, whether in time and space, um, to where we are today. And I think that's the most like interesting thing with the calendar. And, and again, the longevity of the project and what it means to be in a digital era and record Sikh and Punjabi history. And again, laying the foundations of like what it means. Like, I mean, our elders were writing books, right? Articles and pamphlets and leaflets. And then now our job is like, we're doing the social media pages. We're doing the kind of digital like record keeping and all those things like that. And God knows what, like, you know, what the future will look like, but it's definitely that kind of like passing the baton, you know, and, and, and I think lots of people are doing exhibitions and like curating exhibitions for general publics around the world and sharing what Sikhi is and sharing its history and understanding and doing Prajarak and all these things like that. I mean, you know, this idea about, you know, Godwaras were really not that much of a thing in terms of like there was a time when, you know, we had historical Godwaras that we would go to and that would become a thing. Or then there was this huge proliferation of these Godwaras that came in the 20th century. And then, you know, and now we're seeing like almost a redundancy in Godwaras. I mean, you, I mean, you can easily see that on how like Sikhi is being shaped on YouTube, like basics of Sikhi and how maybe other social media pages, people find kind of Sikhi, Sikh sources and don't feel the need to go to Godwara. And, 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 and in some in some respects becomes redundant. Uh, like you, you know, our society and everything, and and six hundred is being radically transformed, and and again is a is a symptom of our time, era, technology, and where we belong, uh, what stage of which country we're born in. So I'm uh, what I'm trying to say is that uh, what is Sikh archive? Why is it important? You know, where is it going with the future? I think it's it's just it's a checkpoint. That's what I would say. Yeah. No, touche. I just wanted to ask one last question. I think it'd be a nice way to wrap up the podcast, which is we've spoken a lot about kind of the bigger systems, the 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 kind of undercurrents that impact us and history on a day-to-day -day basis, perhaps that we're not even aware of. 
However, just bringing it back to like an individual basis, what would you like? Because you're someone who has taken something from a personal basis, constructed, kind of started out with just a bit of a whim and then constructed something really powerful and and, uh, and amazing and inspirational. Because if I'm completely honest, you are probably 90% of the reason I restarted Ramblings. So if anyone wants to uh, abuse me... What, because I was I triggered you, yeah, with some much sick history storytelling? No, 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 like... not at all. Imagine, imagine if that was the case. No, not at all. I just think... You'd be like, you know what? Fuck this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, the thing that I really personally jowled with was the fact that you have the brass knuckles to engage with parts of history that that I would personally say are quite not controversial in that it, you're finding controversial history, but it's controversial for wider society because it's questioning those norms, those kind of things we've got used to. So for argument's sake, I love the, the, the exhibition you're doing currently on Sikh women in history and how that works. Because one thing that I found, and, and this is just from a completely like historical basis, is it's really difficult to find information about Sikh women, full stop. And I found information on Sikh women in history in really like random places. Um, however, the question that I actually want to put to you. So what would you say to people listening and especially kind of when I say the youth, because we're like, we're not that old. Obviously, we're old enough to, to have kids, but we're not that old. Um, but in relation to kind of like teenagers, kids growing up, people who are kind of trying to perhaps find their like footing. What would you recommend to teenagers, kids? even adults in terms of what can they do to engage with Sikh history philosophy and equally what can they do to perhaps perpetuate or kind of further the cause so to speak yeah I gotta I'm gonna um, I'm gonna like pass the baton here because one of the elders um, that I drew inspiration from when it comes to Sikh studies or even why I started anything to do with Sikh blogging or even reading Sikh history books or getting a you know a kind of understanding of Sikh history or anything like that was from Harvinder uh, Singh Mandir from uh, Norjwani. Uh, he he does these uh, Sikh studies lecture courses uh, completely free and they're fourteen week courses uh, where he'll give a kind of an overview of Sikh history and they're really they're kind of really intimate kind of lectures, uh, really kind of um, you know engaging, uh, open questions and long long uh, form discussions maybe two hours uh where we discuss maybe you know from good and nanak to current day Sikh sangat community and migration and so on you know we're talking about the missiles we're talking about the guru periods we're talking about maharaja ranjit singh we're talking about partition we're talking about you know the british uh, influence on sikhi and uh, it's a really interesting 14 week lecture but, but by the end of it, what's really interesting is that the 14th lesson, I think it could be the 13th, I think it's the 14th. The 14th lesson is, it's not a, it's not a lesson, it's, it's a whole kind of workshop dedicated for us to bounce ideas of what we're going to do. And I think his philosophy is, and his very, very supportive philosophy is, do something do something like it could be anything and i and it makes more and more sense the older i get well i the, the older i get the more sense i can see in those words because people like yourself like you're doing a podcast right i'm doing a podcast but we have completely different focuses and we are bouncing off each other we're sharing resources we discover each other we inspire each other 
You know, there are so many consequences that are so far beyond what you may be aware of. If you simply do something, now there are, there's, there's a few uncles uh, in North America, I'm talking like USA and Canada, who have like this energy and this drive to do things. And I'm not always on board with it, let's be honest, yeah, because it's militaristic or it's something, yeah. But the fact that they're doing something like that and it invokes a reaction in one of us to do something is the whole aim of the game, right? Um, and I th and I, like I said, I, the more older I get, the more sense Harvinder uh, Singh Mandir's words made to me when he says, like, do something, you know, and, and just have an active part or role in anything. You could be an artist, you could be a musician, you could be a blogger, you could be a writer, you could be a sports star, you can be a bungalow dancer, you could, whatever you're doing, you're doing something because you're in encouraging, you're exciting the discourse on something and, and and i don't mean go out there and do controversial things i just mean generally that for any person anything is going to be controversial no matter what you do no matter what you say you're going to get criticism no matter what you know just go ahead and do it and you know and i, I and so what i'm trying to say is that my advice to other people would simply be that and i'm just passing on that advice what i was given or what i came to those realizations is actually just to do something there is a, there is a, you know, me just documenting the Sikhs of Denmark here or just starting Sikh Archive has had, a, like I said, if I didn't do Sikh Archive, maybe that wouldn't bring you back in the game, you know, or something like that. And, 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 and that was just me. Uh, and that, that that's one of many consequences of having the Sikh Archive page or me coming into Denmark and going to the Godwara and asking the Pradhan, uh, Uncle Ji, Pella, Kuhanayasi, 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 Kuhanayasi. Just asking those questions and doing that one step and, and led to the fruition of the museum and the exhibition project because I was taking a fascination. Just simply doing something has a has a huge chain of events that sometimes is, is visible and sometimes it's not. You know, I'm sure that your book reviews are reaching people widely and, and coming to their own kind of realizations of who they are and what this means to them and how they reproduce or pass that baton on. And I think doing something just does that. I mean, we have like, let's say, for example, now you have gay sex and all strength to them at this time. I mean, you know, like, it, like they're pushing boundaries in what our discourse is currently on the topic. And uh, it, 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 it tests a lot of people. It encourages a lot of people. And again, like I said, solidarity and all strength to them because, you know, they push the limits of the conversations to be further for, for the furtherance of the discourse on what it, you know, what does sick discourse look like? It could be any topic, you know, it could, sometimes, it's, sometimes it's something you're not even doing. But if you are visually or projecting or doing something in some sense being part of it engaging or demonstrating or protesting or or being present you know sometimes being present somewhere just like for example having someone in attendance just going somewhere to listen to something can really maybe even offer the speaker confidence of something that you know what this thing or this core has come to attend or you know, this, it, it just has a monumental chain of events that sometimes, again, are visible or invisible. But by just doing something, 
even just producing artwork and maybe it's not good artwork yeah or maybe it's not good poetry but that contributes to the ether of poetry right the 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 ether of work that is contributed to sick literature and because you know when when i dig through newspapers archival material do you know how much stuff make the papers and how like it trivial it might have been at the time but how much value it has in the future like you'll have you'll have a you'll have a story like you know uh, there's a photographers in in birmingham i think it was in handsworth that took photographs of minorities like uh, uh, West Indian and Punjabi migrants and these things or something just attended and they took they got their photos taken and it was probably the most trivial thing in the world for them just crossing like maybe somewhere in Hansworth and a photographer wants to take a photo but then it like reach it, it it's in books now the Sikhs of Britain book or it's in all the newspapers or it's like kind of is used on sick archive 40 50 years later or it's rediscovered and it's put on exhibitions and it just it has a such a lasting effect of what impact we can have you know journalists are like the first drafters of history and i think you know when we make the papers when we do anything or everything like there is like we leave a footprint on this you know on this world uh, on this world scale of history in time and space um and i think just by doing something by attending going to work you know or being part of something attending a lecture you know that gives a lecture confidence that their material means something even if you're just listening or that you bump shoulders with someone that has a similar world view and has a sh- similar passion for something or that you decide to create or curate some art or poetry or music or an exhibition or a blog or you become you know something i think it just has a huge huge it's a huge complex dynamical system of how much influence or how much kind of project how much we can project onto others you know and i think um and i think you know sick archive blog does that in some way uh because there are many people that reach out and say you know what uh so for example i just shared nikki gananda calls uh, sings book and no one knew a lot well i wouldn't say no one i said a lot of people just didn't know it existed and they've just been saying we're buying it we're buying it now and we didn't know there was this feminine energy or feminist uh, interpretation of sikhi at such a scholarly level um and you know how how much like even scholarly work as there's a lot of gatekeeping there people don't have access to it you know and just making that comment is having a huge impact on people um again right or wrong you know we take for example her joseph overy's book right or wrong whether you agree with it or disagree with it the amount of work and literature that it gave rise to in criticism only strengthened the sick history um scholarly work it only strengthened it um and it only became stronger whether or not again agree or disagree with his work the monumental impact he's had on others to become actively engaged in the discourse to prove him wrong or however you want to see it prove him right prove him wrong whatever has only birthed a much greater movement and it was only because he chose to do something you know and i think that's nine times out of 10 that's the case where if you want to do something and and it's people have conflicting opinions or whatever you know so be it 
it's it's just strengthening both your arguments or whatever no completely well just to round up so essentially what you're saying is do something even if it's bangra because it will help in one way or another shout out also to norjwani and hadwinder because i think that philosophy is actually pretty brilliant because irrespective of whether you agree or disagree the the end goal is still it's constructive with like we're simply just trying to engage re-engage and keep going to just help further one another's understanding that's a really nice way of of perhaps ending the podcast because um that's essentially what you're doing it's essentially what i'm doing we're just doing the little bit that we think might make a difference whether it does or not who knows i hope it does um whether one person listens to the podcast or a million people like as long as it makes a difference to somebody i guess that's all that matters really